Blank check with Griffin and David. Blank check with Griffin and David. Don't know what to say or to expect. All you need to know is that the name of the show is Blank Check. I'll tell you something, this country's going to the dogs. You know, it used to be when you bought a podcast, that son of a bitch stayed bought. <laughs> good shit. This movie's got good lines. Yeah, yeah, this movie's got some nice, like, scummy monologues to wrap your mouth around. This movie feels like any room in any residence that Charlie Sheen has ever lived in. <laughs> It's got good lines. Okay. Still. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. They're sure. still there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's my argument. Had you seen this movie before? No, I'd never seen this movie before. Uh, our, our guest, had you seen this movie before? I have never seen this movie. I thought it was a Ron Howard movie. I don't know why wow. in my mind I always associated used cars as like Ron Howard's first directorial debut. Well, that's there's Grand Theft Auto, right? Yes, that's the because Ron it's Howard also movie. a yeah. Cars movie. Right. And, and in a certain way, this feels like it could have been a Ron Howard, Michael Keaton comedy. Not the final product, but on paper, right. you're like, this could have been the thing that happens right after Night Shift. Well, by the way, this is the closest thing we have to a Back to the Future prequel. I mean, this is all the power players that made Back to the Future made this movie. And there are zero similarities. Like, like if you put these two (laughs) movies together, you'd be like, all right, who are the same behind the scenes players? You'd be like, oh, no one. And it's everyone. They have like opposite visions of America, these movies, yes. those two movies, basically. This, yes. I've never seen this as well, but this to me, I was like, because I don't know what I was expecting something different and what it was made me so happy because this, mm-hmm. yeah. this is the kind of movie that I feel like isn't, not only isn't done anymore, but very quickly after this period isn't done really at all. Like, I feel like used cars has more in common with like Smokey and the Bandit than it does... Mm-hmm. Um, yes. uh, back to the future like then it does I, I almost feel like it's Robert Zemeckis doing something at a time when there is like blue collar scumbag anti-heroes are like the lead of of movies right rousing people to help them combat yes. like usually cops or um, judges or whatever you know in this and you know whatever but this this to me that kind of shaggy uh, uh, bad guy is the good guy kind of thing. That's, uh, you know, that's like Burt Reynolds. That's Hooper. Like that's Burt Reynolds movies of the seventies. It's great. It's Burt Reynolds movies of the seventies and Bill Murray movies of the eighties. Like yes. the exact cross section between those two movie star runs. I will yes. also say this movie, there's an inherent like horniness to this movie. And it's not like a sexual mm-hmm. horniness, but there is like, there's a very like, I don't know, adolescent, young man energy yeah smutty like yeah yeah. Yeah. it's a weird thing it's like you just don't see movies like this and smoking the bandit doesn't even have that like and i'm going to use that term again like horniness it's just like there's something very unique about here it's like we're gonna blow up shit we have strippers you know it's like there's there's some an energy yeah it's got that kind of like early landis thing you know the like kentucky fried movie right yeah even like Bad News Bears has this, even like they're like, just mm. like that the guys you're following and 
it's like you could not have this movie doesn't work without Kurt Russell in many ways. No way. Oh, you know, like absolutely. Kurt Russell at a time in a place where he is showing you so well that he can both straddle what is capable of being like the slimy, smarmy kind of guy who is cheating people like legitimately that opening crane down from like the lot into him dialing back the odometer is perfect. It's like, here is this guy. He's a piece of shit. And then the whole movie is just him being a charming hero. And that is fucking amazing. Well, look, it, no, Paul, what were you going to say? Sorry. No, no, go No, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to do the proper intro. So I'll let you say oh, yeah. your point first. No intros. This episode. No intros. We intro. Wow, no know, intro. We'll end intro it. Great. We're going to end intro. Fine. Great. There we go. So I'll, I'll say what I was going to say, which is just uh, I've been digging deep uh, into this run of the, the early Gale Zemeckis movies. And I won't explain why, because I'm not introing the show or explaining our central premise. <laughs> but um, I've been watching these movies, obviously, and uh, also watching all the special features and trying to find any interviews I can. And there are two things that really stuck out to me while watching this movie. One is uh, Gail was saying in some interview, I think it might have been on the special features for used cars, um, that, that Francois Truffaut always said that a filmmaker's second movie is always in direct opposition to their first film. In one way or another, yeah. whether their film was a success or a failure, once again, I'm not explaining why that's an interesting theme to this show, because that intro will come later, but whether their first film is a success or a failure, their second film is in some way a direct response to that and usually trying to play the opposite of that. Either now that I've done this well, I want to try to flex this other thing, or because that was a failure, I need to zoom in another direction. And despite I Want to Hold Your Hand, their debut film, being great, did not do well. And so this was very much like, that was PG, it was pretty soft, it was pretty gentle, it was pretty humane. Let's make the most like anarchic, socially irresponsible, R-rated, gonzo comedy we can. And the second thing is that in between this and Back to the Future is Romancing the Stone, which was the ah. one movie that Zemeckis didn't write because he had two flops in a row. He said, I'll take a script that someone else wrote. I just need a hit. But Back to the Future is the third proper like Zemeckis-Gale collaboration. And when they were pitching it, everyone said, this isn't marketable. If you're making a comedy, it has to be Porky's or it has to be Stripes. So they had just made a movie that was like Porky and Stripes that was a flop. And then they were pitching Back to the Future and everyone was like, if you're going to make this movie, the lead guy has to be a Bill Murray, like anarchic, fuck the, yeah. you know, the powers that be guy. Or the film has to be a ribald sex comedy or both. You can't make a gentle movie about a guy trying to help his dad get a date. <laughs> and so this movie exists in such a weird specific pocket of Galen Zemeckis doing this thing incredibly well that feels like it's not necessarily what they are most driven to. And this is one of only two R-rated movies that Zemeckis ever made. The second one is Flight. Well, I want to talk about comedy and Zemeckis and comedy and then go a little bit further out and talk about Spielberg and comedy because I love, I I love, love this context. I love Spielberg, but in comedy in Spielberg, I don't yes. know what his sense of humor is, right? And I feel like we this were, movie, we were talking about this on our last episode. Spielberg and comedy is very weird. Exactly. And I feel like in a weird way, 
this is Spielberg's sense of humor because he's like, I want to continue working with these guys. I think this movie is like a sledgehammer comedy. And I, and what I mean by that is that odometer scene that Jason's talking about, you know, the music that kind of underscores it. It's so big. It's so bombastic when they hit. Oh, it's like, it's like John Philip Sousa marches are used throughout the movie to give you this sense of like old timey, like grand kind of like Americana kind of bullshit, but then juxtaposing it with someone who is acting in direct opposition to what those kind of patriotic marches represent. It's, it's uprising music yes. uh, committed to a swindler and a shitbag. Yeah. I mean, but in a weird way, you the the kind of thing that works really well, and I know that we're talking about Bill Murray being like this you know, a guy who is against the system, like Kirk Douglas makes a shitbag likable. I think you could always argue that Bill Murray could be unlikable to other people. But in this movie, uh, Kurt Russell is likable pretty much to everybody, but the guy that he's against, right? The other Fuchs brother, which by the way, why did I know I was going to love this movie? When it said in the credits, Jack Warden as the Fuchs brothers. Slam dunk. Yeah. You can like, sit back. Dual in. role Jack Warden. You're like, in good I hands. Like, yeah. I was so excited yeah. when I saw that he was playing two roles. That was, and was, and was bummed when he died young so in upset. one of the roles. Or died early, rather. He is a great shithead, and he's a great, like, good old pal who, you know, is your best bud. He's great at both, and he's like, why don't I just do both? I read that um, he was, he originally turned this movie down and then said only that he would only do it if he, he was offered, I can't remember which of the brothers, and said he would only do it if he could play both. Yeah, he, they offered wow. him the bad guy. The good brother was going to be a different actor, and he said he'd only do it if he could do both. Which um, I love. Amazing. Which is so good. And Jack Warden, you know, Jack Warden is somebody who, for me, is, you know, Jack Warden in Shampoo is unbelievable. Jack Warden yep. is like, and then, Heaven you know. Wait. Yes, like is just one of my all-time favorite character actors yes. of this generation. Well, I mean, this movie is chock full of some of my favorite people. I mean, Joe Flaherty. I just Ugh. I don't see enough of Joe Ugh. Flaherty. Michael I McKeon, love- Lenny Michael and Michael Squiggy, McKeon. Lenny and both Squiggy in this movie. Do you think that Lenny and Squiggy create? Like, wh- I was trying to figure out the timeline. Is this pre Laverne and Shirley, and did they cast them because of this movie or vice versa? Is it pre? Is it no? It's yeah. mid no, Laverne and Shirley. It's, in, it's mid yeah. Laverne and wow. Shirley. And the selling point was they were getting into such an Urkel zone where it was like their characters were becoming so big. And they had started out as comedy partners that the pitch was, do you guys want to come? You get to work together. We'll give you a lot of latitude. You can make the characters as different as you want. And yeah. that was the selling point for them. You were not hiring you to right. play Lenny and Squiggy. And they were great. I mean, that's like the only yeah. heart. My only heartbreak is that um, uh, Carmine Ragusa, the big ragu, didn't get in as well. Uh, you know? love like, a little ragu on top of the dish. <laughs> yeah, yeah just to- a little bit <laughs> of that spicy sauce, you know. Yes. Why did they break up? Do we know why they broke up? Like, or they didn't work together more? I think them? it was probably that problem. I think it was that they yeah, the were just like thing. Right. It, the, the duo had become so iconic that to a certain degree, I think they were probably worried about like, are we Cheech and Chong? Are we never going to be able right. to do stuff that isn't reliant on this dynamic the other thing that we need to lay out right away if we're talking about career arcs is that this is this is the first kurt russell movie that's not a disney movie right like i know there's the elvis 
the Elvis miniseries, miniseries the I John think that Carpenter, was the year before. Elvis miniseries comes out the year before right. and then used cars. These two things come out within, I believe, six right. months of each other. Maybe a little bit this more. This is a year before Escape from New York. Like, the following year, okay. Escape from New York. Yes. But that's, right. that's, that's him the being transition. like, I am a grown up. I can play a badass. Like, don't, right. you know, I'm not just like a, a sweetie pie. But this is the beginning of him being like, I can have an edge to me in a movie. This is where you see him being a charming rake. This yes. is where, yeah. this is the version of Kurt Russell I believe could have been Han Solo. Yes. You know? Yes. Yes. Like that yes. I, that yes. makes sense to me. The charming rogue, the 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 guy who's operating only for himself until he's forced to be, you know care about others. Like think of this run. It is used cars, escape from New York, the thing, Silkwood, swing shift. I mean that's a pretty It's a great run. Yeah. Great run. Like and yeah, he's on his way on further, to yeah. tango in cash. Yes. You know? That, right, when he hits perfection. <laughs> Um, but I believe it's the Disney charm that makes him yeah. like that makes this kind of like this movie in somebody else's hands is a little less likable. There is something very like so like charming and you want to root for him. And yes, he is a scumbag, but I honestly don't even view it like that because he's he brings a real level of an everyman to it. Not like Bill Murray. I think like Bill Murray seems like he's working the system or Kurt Russell seems like the system's on him and he's just trying to do good. Like he's trying to run for, <laughs> I mean, the plot points in this movie are insane. Like, insane. Well, the fact to your yes. point, exactly, Paul, the fact that his drive, the engine that is driving him through the movie is that he needs to raise enough money for a bribe. Yes. He yes. needs to like the system. It's another, it's a movie. It's another great kind of movie that exists in a world in which everything is corrupt, right? It is, we are post American graffiti in terms of everybody's great. Everybody's cruising the streets. Everything's great. It's the fifth, like fifties nostalgia, uh, which, which Zemeckis will then like firmly engage in, in back to the future. Mm -hmm. But instead here he is, it's very present day. It is very much. We're fucked. You know, like yeah. we're it's fucked. like post Nixon post, car, yes. you know, post Ford. Right. Yes. That kind of like, eh, Everything like post Vietnam, everything is a fucking mess. The and you got to scrape by as best you can. Politics are bullshit. Even to be a state senator, you need a fifty thousand dollar buy in to bribe some guy, and that's and that's what Kurt, Kurt Russell wants in on politics. And let's yes. make it clear: the reason he wants to raise that fifty thousand dollar bribe is so that he can get into office and then accept bribes for the rest of his life. He explicitly right. wants yes. to be a viable politician. That's yes. what he tells everyone. <laughs> and like, I, I don't think that the other dealership is probably that much better, but it, they're acting like, well, we got to save our used car. Like they're terrible business. They By rob the way, people. I mean, they sell them shitty cars. The, go ahead, go the, ahead. The, the, the main thrust of this film is incredibly flawed because it's driven a lot by these commercials. And we'll get into like how those commercials come about. Uh, they're big set pieces, but like, these commercials are so effective that all of a sudden people in this town are like, oh, I got to buy a car now. Like, it, like, yeah. it, 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 like buying cars aren't like it's it's not like, oh, there's a new thing I must get. It's like people are buying cars in this town at and reckless, uh, recklessly. Right. I, As I if they're like <laughs> hitting up a new frozen yogurt shop. Yes. It, yes. It is bizarre. Like, like I've never seen a used car commercial and be like, oh, yeah, I should buy a car right now. Uh, they really missed an opportunity to make the. 
uh, pink berry red mango version remake of uh, used cars. Mm, Menchies. Uh, <laughs> when that ha- when those two went to war at e- with each other. Used Gertz. Um, I'm, I'm gonna lay I'm gonna lay out a little context here because I did a deep dive in the formation of this movie, which ties together a lot of the things we're talking about in terms of what this movie gets right and how it almost could have been wrong. So Zemeckis and Gale were like the two filmmakers that Spielberg really mentored. And he says, like, the only time in my career where I really formed friendships with two directors, kept them under my wing for over a decade, was very invested in everything they did. And it was from seeing their student film when he had only made Sugarland Express before he was Spielberg. So as his career got bigger and bigger, he was able to slide more and more checks their way. But this movie started as a Spielberg project. And you talk about Spielberg not being particularly good at comedy. I think what he loved so much in Gale and Zemeckis is him seeing, this is what I would do if I had the facility for comedy. In the same way that he read their script for 1941 and he went, this seems fun. This sort of anarchy, this scale, this level of destruction, but he didn't know how to pull it off himself. John Milius was their other big mentor. Milius, Spielberg, Gale, and Zemeckis, which is Crazy, a crazy crew to think about. But Milius is the sort of like super like libertarian, like fuck everything. Movies should be socially irresponsible. He, I think, really stirs the sort of like anti-authoritarian chaos in Gale and Zemeckis. And um, the project started out with them all hanging out and Milius saying, you know what I've always wanted to make a movie about? There is this phenomenon of used car dealerships right outside of Las Vegas, where guys are driving to Vegas and right before they enter the town, they go, I should sell my shitty car so I have more cash in hand to gamble and I'm going to make so much money this weekend that I'll be able to come out of it driving a nicer car. And at the end of the weekend, they end up having to downgrade and buy a shittier car from the guy they just sold their car to. What a great idea for a movie. I mean, or a a great great idea. a centerpiece. That is a crazy phenomenon. Right. And the kind of thing that only somebody like John Milius or like in later generations, somebody like David Milch would have the kind of like not base of knowledge of like how people fuck their lives up because of gambling. That's a personal experience story. That's like John Milius saying. So I've heard that. Um, some people sometimes. <laughs> John Milius. John Milius is not out there. Like there is an article in the Atlantic right. about <laughs> this phenomenon. John Milius is like, no, I live a monster's life, right. and they one have of eight of my cars. One of the other monsters that I talked to told me this great story. You know, and that's right. that's it. You know, and that's that's what I and that's what I love about this is small stakes war. Yes. You know, small stakes war that never escalates beyond what it is like it. Nobody it never like it. It doesn't get um, it never tips into absurdity. It never it only makes it only reflects more every it's all character based war, which well, is I mean, wonderful. I, I would I would argue you could make an you could make a uh, an issue about them interrupting a presidential broadcast nationally <laughs> as maybe <laughs> slightly absurd that they were near like a breaker that said like white house communication like they're not in dc and they're in front of like a satellite that's, that's just this like, white house communications satellite uh, sure they sure. might have just gotten the local version of that broadcast no right? that was like, the national I, yeah. they were national, going national. National. that was the whole net na- wow which was even funnier to me because it's like they are making a national commercial for a one store used car <laughs> 
Listen, Dealership. when you've got Lenny and Squiggy as your lone gunman type guys, you can get anything done. Absolutely. By the way, that's the sequel, too. I mean, there's so many great spinoffs here, but I agree with what yes. you're saying. This should it's have been like, a launching pad. It's It really is like the easiest idea to get in front of. It's just it's just, you know, store warfare. It's just like one upmanship. Of- it's super small stakes. But such good character movement. And, and the you know, stakes are so well defined. It's the, yes. the Gail Zemeckis thing of just like, you know exactly what everyone wants, what the obstruction is, what the workaround is. Um, it's so fucking good. But, but so they're all talking about this. Spielberg goes, that's a great idea for a movie. I want to make it. So Spielberg kind of calls dibs on it. And at this point, he's like post Jaws, right? Wow. And, and they're like, Spielberg's never going to make this fucking movie. But it, ostensibly, Milius is saying that he'll write this for Spielberg someday. And the exact idea is George Hamilton. They go, the premise is, it's what? used car dealership outside of Las Vegas. You can see the poster. It's George Hamilton. And the tagline is, would you buy a used car from this man? Which talk about how well cast Kurt Russell is. This movie does not work if it's George Hamilton, who seems irredeemable. No. is too slimy. I get why they would think that when they're pitching around in the bar. I totally do. Yes. But could not be a, because he also somehow reeks of Las Vegas. Too obvious. You know? But um, but but Kurt Russell and I could spend the the next two hours alone just talking about Kurt Russell. The best, you know, because he really is unique in this way that we were talking about. You can root for him in a way that even when he is doing bad to every character who is a good character in this in this movie, you are still rooting for him. Well, I mean, case in point, and I don't mean to cut you off, Griffin, like the. The idea that like, I do, when, <laughs> I do mean to cut you off. Griffin. When they kill, <laughs> you're going to railroad him out of this thing. <laughs> when they kill one of the Fuchs brothers, I had a real hard time with that because they bring in this demolition driver to destroy that car. I don't know why that moment hit me as heavier. I think it's supposed to be played for comedy, but this man kills Another man, a good man, a good man. But and it's at his it, brother's at his brother's behest. Yeah. The brother is the brother has let, never shows any remorse for causing the death of his twin brother. And when that happens to me, there's nothing that Kurt Russell can do that is going to top that. So you yeah. basically that moment. Yes. Cleans the deck. It's like it's Kurt killing Russell. John Wick's dog. Yes. Every, every the magic trick. It's yeah. true. Jack Warden is a cute little puppy. He really I mean that that Jack Warden. Nice Jack Warden. In that big yep. shaggy sweater. Absolutely. I think there's also just there. There's the universal sympathy for the guy trying to get his pills. You know what I mean? Like that's you oh. always are like, ah, oh, Jesus, just let the guy get his pills. Like, I know. And I love that the bad guy, the demolition derby driver or whatever he is. Uh, he, you know, he's a bad dude because he walks around, you know, like when they have a tooth, the guy has a toothpick in his mouth and, you know, he's a badass. Well, he's a gearhead version of that. So he carries like a screw around and dang dangling out of his mouth is a long screw. That's the sledgehammer comedy of this movie. It's like, you <laughs> right. get it? You get it? Galen Zemeckis watching all these interviews. The thing they're so good at is is character, right? They always make these really compelling, really fascinating characters who are just like a meal for an actor to dig into. But also they talk about their writing process is so pragmatic where they go like, what are the things we want to achieve by the end of this movie? How do we solve that? 
And what do you need to do to properly set that up? And in that sort of way, things like, well, if you have to watch the good Jack Warden die, that sucks so much that you're going to be on board with anything their rivals do for the rest of the movie. Like they do think pragmatically. And I saw Gail cite John Wick's dog in one of these interviews where he's talking about his storytelling principles. And it feels like a game recognized game thing where he's just like, yeah, you do that in the first act of the first movie. We're with John Wick for the rest of this franchise. Like that's just good, fundamental populist storytelling. Well, because when you see that dog in John Wick, you're like, well, they can't kill this dog. Right. And that's usually how it goes in a movie. Like there's certain things, you know, are off limits. Especially because it's a gift from his now dead wife. It's yeah. not just right. a dog. It's, it also, it, I mean, it's it's it, it, within such a short amount of time, they imbue that dog with such heart and then just like, yeah. boom, so uh, much, Alfie Allen comes in and kills the dog. So much yes, so that when they blow up Jack Warden later in the film, you don't feel that Kurt Russell has done anything wrong. No. Where they no. literally bury nope. him in a shallow grave. You're like, and good then job, blow. buddy. Like, great yeah. job. You had to do it. You had to do this. Right. <laughs> Doing that is less disrespectful than letting his brother take over the dealership. Yes. And, oh, and that's what we should, we because we haven't said what's at stake here is that the government is going to reroute a highway right through either uh, one right through one of the Fuchs brothers car lots. So one of them is about to be out of business and one of them is about to have the best possible setup for selling used cars. Right. And the good, the bad guy Fuchs brother thought he'd bribed all the right people and done all the right. He thought he'd played the game, baby, but he's wrong. And now, so now there's a, there's a ticking clock on, getting rid of the bad Fuchs brother so that he can buy out their inherit rather that land. And there is a contested daughter who re-enters the mix. Re-enters late, by the way. Yeah. This movie is long, by the way. This movie is too this has the John Landis comedy vibe of it's a almost a two-hour film that really for the level of comedy it is, this is a this could have been a 90 minute movie, but I mean, I guess it's that third act too, where it's like, which always kind of not puts me to sleep, but I, it's like the blues brothers thing. It's like, all right, car chase, car chase, car, like car chase. Holy takes shit. Up. That, that car chase goes on for a long time. But, yeah. but I also feel like it's one of the better executions of this oh. I've ever seen. Of yes. I loved it. What should be a three act, 90 minute comedy, adding on an extra act. That's suddenly action set pieces. Yes. yes. It's that thing. This is where, too, it starts to remind me of the Burt Reynolds car movies, you know, car culture movies that are such a part of this, like this big, you know, they get all they've got whatever it is, 200 kids to drive jalopies across the uh, down the highway. And then when they turn, they've got what's his name? Uh, I can't remember the guy's name who uh, is in the lead, who realizes he's in a red car. Uh, and then Garrett gr- Graham, yes, gr- yes. It grinds everything to a halt because, like, I can't drive a red... I, there are so many good little little things woven throughout here about his fear of bad luck and bad juju and, like, good luck charms and red cars. All this stuff about cars and superstitions felt very real again to a used car lot, you know, like to, to guys that are like daily having good or bad luck selling a car. Well, that's where, I mean, you guys were saying that this 
does not feel like a movie made by someone who's like three years away from making Back to the Future. No. But on the other hand, I guess five years away. But on the other hand, that's where for me the last act, the fourth act of this movie really starts to show, oh, these guys are about to make Back to the Future. Because the way all those things pay off, all these things that for the first 90 minutes feel like just fun bits of characterization. Right. One like the, bits. The, the teacher coming back with all his students. Like that's yeah. a Everything random joke that doesn't need to come back. back all in. that. Yes. Like the, this scrappy yeah. comedy at the last 30 minutes becomes tight as a drum. And suddenly everything is suddenly like an activator for some ecstatic payoff. And by the way, I just want to shout out uh, Alfonso Arrow, who you might know as El Guapo from Three Amigos, who plays a very large part in this movie because yes. he owns the 200 and 60 cars and a great little moment in the beginning that you forget about goes away for the entire film. And I was so excited to see him back again. It was a great, it was it, at the beginning. It was odd that they did set up. Oh, I have 260 cars, but, yeah. uh, but it was, uh, it was a, it was a payoff. I enjoyed seeing come back. Well, both of you guys come from improv. There's that, there's that philosophy where it's like the perfect time to do a callback is the minute after the audience has just forgotten the thing yes. you set up in the first oh, place. And that's what they do this a yes. couple of times throughout the movie, you know, is they let you, they don't feel like they need to hold your hand at all. They let you forget that those cars exist. They let you forget a number of items, even as to your point earlier, how they, how long they wait to have the daughter return. Yeah. You know, like not that you've forgotten, but you really she in another movie, she would have come earlier. And in the John Milius version of the movie, they would have failed. You know, like it, it's a it's a it's a Zemeckis. You can feel Zemeckis and Spielberg in how the end of the how the last act of this movie is unabashedly hopeful and successful. Yes. You know, like to the yes. point where to the point where they are. Uh, Kurt Russell and um, I'm forgetting the actress's name who plays the Fuchs daughter. Uh, uh, De Deborah, Deborah Harmon. Harmon. Deborah the, Harmon uh, are like also in the, the back. Plutonium newscaster in Back to the Future who oh, announces honey. that it's yeah stolen. Um, they are in yep. the back of a pickup truck, like leading everybody like rah, rah, rah. It is. It feels very it's 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 ecstatic. You know, this this yes. we're going to do it. We're going to save the show um, <clears throat> in a way that I feel like. The John Milius version ends with like a wrecking ball going through the used car dealership. You and, know? and them crying at the funeral of an American flag. Yes. Uh, they, I mean, this they win over Grandpa Munster. Like oh, the, the fact great. that. Right. There's something about like the infectiousness of this guy representing the good and the ill of the American spirit is is the Spielberg Zemeckis connection. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So they're developing this vaguely back pocket as Milius and Spielberg's project. I Want to Hold Your Hand comes out. It doesn't really make an impact. Spielberg's working on 1941. 
And Zemeckis and Gale are eager to make another movie. They set up a film that's a crime thriller, which gets shut down. Griffin, I, think, I hate to interrupt. Production. Please. Griffin, I hate to interrupt. But, Please. But um, I've never seen I Want to Hold Your Hand. Neither have I. It it's a good movie. I recommend it. I, I was just, that's what I wanted to know, just because you've now brought it up a number of times. Um, is it worth watching? Like, is totally. there a, okay, great. All the music great. of the Beatles, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. It's one of those like super confident debuts where you're like, oh man, this guy just knew where to put the camera from like minute one. Like it is a great. very involving, easy to watch movie. It's also a 90 minute comedy. Yeah. Like this is a little more expansive. That's a pretty straight, okay. like it's a pretty straightforward. It's kind of like, a B-side of American Graffiti, a little more like Chipper, but it's got that kind of it, a vibe. It, yeah, it's a more manic, it's like a Looney Tunes version of American Graffiti, but it's that kind of like a bunch of young teenagers at a turning point in American culture questioning their future and the future of their country uh, through the prism of the Beatles. It rules, uh, but it doesn't do well. And it's like a very so it's tender. Just, is it, it's just like yesterday? It's exactly, exactly <laughs> like yesterday. <laughs> Got exactly it. like yesterday and that it's it. perfect isn't it crazy that like <laughs> we are still making movies in which we see the <laughs> world that we live in through the lens of the beatles yes like that's that's how much this generation is still like that's that's the boomers right there we can't they did get it, out from under they that did shadow. it in the mid 70s and they're still fucking doing it trying to convince us the beatles are the best band of all time right they're like i know for the last 40 or 50 years we've been making movies about the shadow of influence the beatles have cast what <laughs> if we change the game and make movies about how shitty things would be if the Beatles never existed because we can only understand worlds through the prism of whether or not the Beatles have landed. Oh, it's so crazy. Yes. I'm sorry. Please, please continue Griffin. So Gail and Zemeckis are supposed to do this movie that I think later becomes trespass the Walter Hill film starring ice cube and ice tea. That's correct. Oh, wow. wow. They developed that this early. Wow. Right. They were supposed to yeah. make that film and it got shut down. So then they're just like, fuck, we got to direct something. They go to Milius and Spielberg and they go, guys, come on. You're never going to make fucking used cars like you guys are operating at a different level now. Let us make this scrappy, you know, car dealership comedy. And they go, yeah, that's fine. So they go off and they write the script. They try to do the Las Vegas one. It doesn't work. They go, let's free ourselves of the premise. We just want to make a used car dealership movie. And we want to use this opportunity to make a movie that we think could be a hit. Let's try to make something more in line with the popular comedies of this time. They write a whole other draft. It doesn't work for them. Scrap it. They're like, we got to make something work. They finally come up with the dynamic of the brothers, of the sort of political aspirations, all of that sort of stuff. They still want to do it with George Hamilton. He passes. Wow. George Hamilton goes to what? Uh, Love at first bite. Is that what he does? Yes. Or Zorro the Gay Blade. Right. Yeah, yeah. One of those. But George total- Hamilton passes, passes is hilarious. Passes. Okay. But blessing in disguise. Russell has just done the Elvis miniseries. Other than that, he's a dude who has done 10 years of Disney comedies. A solid 10 years, which makes him seem like a a non-obvious choice, but also is the only reason this movie works. As you said, like movie stars are defined by their real life experience that somehow seeps into their performances, right? That's in a way the difference between a movie star and an actor is some ineffable quality that you can't beat out of someone 
that shines through yeah. and helps your movie. That is, they can't help but be themselves. Right. They are not transformable. At the root, you are always seeing them. You're always seeing a Denzel Washington movie. You're always yes. seeing a Tom Cruise movie. And, and, and there is something where you don't even question it because it just, you want to see them. It's a sequel. It's like you're seeing them do sequels. It's why sometimes when those people try and go against that type, it doesn't work. Like yes. it's why Tom Hanks doesn't work in Road to Perdition. Right. You know? But it's that weird thing of like the 10 years of Disney film school, essentially, that he went through acting in that very specific vein. And I found this radio interview he did promoting used cars and the radio host won't stop bringing up the Disney movies. And Kurt Russell's clearly trying to move past them. And he's being like, well, it was a great experience. I learned how to act. And, you know, I was able to put food on my family's table. But, you know, I'm not proud of these movies. And this is a new thing for me. Like he was really desperate. He had something to prove. In the same way this character wants to transition his life into a higher sort of gear of influence. But also he just has that energy that like Eddie Haskell, gee whiz, I'm going to charm the pants off you all American charm that makes this movie work. And then Carpenter subverts it in a different way, which is like I can put Kurt Russell in these earnest like sort of sci-fi dystopian settings and have him play an anti-hero, and it's going to work because he's always got that slight winking quality. Like, he's mocking it. It's so great because here, it ex- it works in the real world. If yeah. you put him in the real world as a down-on-his-luck, blue-collar kind of hustler, it still works in Big Trouble in Little China, even if he's surrounded by supernatural forces. You know, it it still works if you put him... You know, at an Arctic base, um, you know, and there's and there's a a Cthulhu style uh, monster. It's still he still works because he's your buy in. He's got that characteristic that you're like, I want to be this wise. He's not an expert. He's never uh, the smartest guy in the in the thing. He's never the he's always the guy who has kind of stumbled into and is trying to make the best of. These circumstances. To that point, is there something about Kurt Russell where, and this may be true for a lot of characters, but I'm kind of seeing it with him, where he doesn't bring the problem to himself. Like in this movie, he's not the owner of the dealership. He's defending the dealership's honor, right? In Escape from New York, he's being brought in kind of against his will. He's never wanting to be the hero. He's never really wanting to step up. Whereas sometimes I feel like there are other characters going back to the Bill Murray example. Like he does stir shit up. He's like, I want, I am, I am the catalyst to a certain degree. Like, and Kurt Russell's always like, he's not the lead guy in the thing. He's not like, he's always just the every man in a big situation who then is forced to step up. There's something you're yeah. right. There's something about him that is put upon. Yes. Right. And there's like Kurt Russell excels when he as a character has been put in circumstances that are not what, not ideal for him that he needs to figure a way out of. And, and even Tarantino uses this in once upon a time in Hollywood by forcing Kurt Russell's character to be in between his wife and Brad Pitt. Yeah. You know, he's still like, he's still jammed. He's always jammed up somehow. He's never in control. He's never, he's always somehow reactive He's very, here's, here's the beauty of Kurt Russell. He's incredibly active in being reactive to other characters. 
Except when he's Captain Ron. That's when you get him full, <laughs> full blown chaos. Uncut Kurt. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like it is. I, I mean, he's a guy who always seems to have a very canny understanding of his movie pers- persona and his skills in that sort of sense and what sort of stories he functions best in. Because, like, Bill Murray is Bugs Bunny, right? Bill Murray, his dynamic is I don't even want to be in this movie. That's the appeal is not only is he fucking with all the characters on screen, but it feels like he's fucking with the fact that he even has to be in the film. He's coming just short of staring down the lens and going, ain't I a stinker? Kurt Russell is very engaged in the stakes of whatever movie he's in, but it is sort of that Han Solo thing with a little more postmodern edge of I'm trying my hardest to be a piece of shit, but somehow there's some level of decency that's coming through. There's some sweet little boy who's fighting for the right thing underneath. There's a sweetness. Right. And, and he has the Han Solo thing of like, I am about half a step ahead of this. Like it is going to, this could fall apart on me very quickly, but I'm usually good at staying just slightly ahead of whatever disaster is about to fall on top of me. But you also talk about like the way this character is built he is a piece of shit. Everything he does yeah, is objectively asshole. kind of wrong and unlawful. But as we're saying, A, he spends most of the movie trying to save a dealership that isn't even his. B, to defend the honor of his friend, a guy we like. So you're put in a position where he is doing something kind of selfless. And the raising $50,000 is like a subplot but it does make you kind of root for the guy because you're aligned in this sort of like, well, enemy of my enemy is my friend. And I, know? Was, I was curious, though, why he wouldn't embrace the daughter and bring her into the plan earlier. Yeah. Why is he suspicious of her? It's right. a good question. And, you know, and I thought, oh, they're going to pull the rug out from him. Like, I kept on waiting for her to say, I'm actually not the daughter. Like when Jack Warden, the alive Jack mm. Warden, looks at the picture and they go, oh, that's his daughter. He would say, that's not his daughter. He never had a daughter. It was, you know, that was just a girl who came to the dealership. And then you'd be like, oh, no, Kurt Russell's in a relationship right. with. It right. was the person like this is a bigger, uh, uh, you know, I thought there was going to be a bigger switch. Because right, she's introduced as being suspicious. Like she's yeah. introduced yes. where it's like, who are you exactly? You know, like and she's sort of snooping around. And I thought they would play into that. Yeah. What's yeah, what yeah. I I thought all that as well, but what I kind of like that the movie does though is when offered the opportunity to bring her into it and thus make her a part of the good guy's plan, Kurt Russell's character does the wrong thing and fucks her over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, yeah, like an the he's a piece of shit. Like the movie, he does he actively romances her without telling her even that her father is dead. Like he won't, he won't give her like even the knowledge that her father has passed away, that she just had the first conversation with in 10 years. When Jack Warden, the, um, the good Jack Warden comes out of the office, having just spoken on the phone to his daughter and the, the derby racer is there with the screw in his mouth. Jack Warden cannot stop talking elatedly about how happy he is his daughter it's a miracle he keeps saying it's a miracle my, that was my daughter my daughter wants to see me and then he and she was dies? A, and by the way she was in a cult right we don't really get into that like he <laughs> yeah, does say was she was curious. in a cult for 10 
years. And I believe that the script does not really pay off on that in her personality at all. Like, no, she doesn't. She doesn't seem affected. She doesn't seem like she's being deprogrammed. Well, she was in the Nexium sex cult. And so she was doing <laughs> a lot of work on like supporting parts on TV shows that shoot in Vancouver. Yes, By the absolutely. way, I thought that she was actually in that cult uh, from that Netflix documentary where uh, they took over. Oh, that. Wild Wild Country. Yeah, it's about oh, yeah. the right time. Yeah. I guess the only way in which it factors into her character is that she's very quick to fall for another sort of charismatic huckster. Oh, okay. I buy that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But by the way, wouldn't that have been a great thing that she never did trust him? Like, I don't yes. trust once, you know, once bitten, twice shy. Like, It's a nice thing they do, though, because at this point, they could redeem Kurt Russell and they don't. You know, they double down on making sure, you know, he's only in this for himself. You're right. They want you to walk out of there being like, what was I rooting for? Like, why was I so pumped up about that? Like, it's a pretty acidic movie considering how fun it is. But this is another very subtle magic trick they're doing, which is you're watching it and you're going, this guy is wrong. Why am I rooting for him? And you're not really even factoring in the fact that it is like it's it's his friend's legacy it's someone else's business it's all these other things like on a he surface, doesn't even know he to, doesn't to, to know be fair, he's doing Kurt anything Russell doesn't good. even know about the highway plan right. it's not like everybody knows the highway plan is looming over everybody's heads he is literally just acting only for his own self-interest at all times until the very end of the movie and even then it is only because he is only then does he have like a crisis of conscience in a way. That's the magic trick is he thinks that he is exclusively doing the wrong thing, but secretly he's doing some right stuff over the course of the movie unknowingly, which makes him rootable. I also think there was an anecdote where they said the scene where he has to sort of like not confess to her, but make the speech about like, I really like you. Right. And I think there's something here on the day they were supposed to shoot that Zemeckis and Gail like took stock of every lie this character is maintaining at this point in time, all the fucked up things he's doing and how much of a huckster he is. And they're like, this monologue is like four lines. I don't think this is enough. We would not be able to convince a girl to stay with this. We have to write this scene out. So they wrote a two and a half page version of it. And they went, hey, Kurt, we know that under the scene was underwritten. So we wrote a new version of it. Here you go. And he looked at it and he goes, guys, I don't need two and a half pages. I can get this done in the four lines. And they went, really? And he delivered the four lines that you see in the movie. And they went, fuck it. Kurt Russell's right. He, as a movie star, has the power to take those four lines and imbue them with enough earnestness, activate his fucking computer war tennis shoes, Disney charm. Super dead. Even though you shouldn't root for this guy, he gives that speech and it's like, gee whiz, I, I really like you. And you go like, fuck, yeah, no, she should stay with him, I guess. It's true. Yeah, it, it really is. Like, you don't lose. You don't lose faith. She in him. came in at a weird point in time where her presence messed up the plan. And I believe that on a different situation and a different day, they would have connected the same way. He just couldn't let her in to this secret plan. So I believe that that's also a part of it too. I mean, not to keep on defending this character, which I really do like, uh, but I, I do believe that, that like you believe that there's a connection between them. Like even when he comes after the bowling alley, like there's something there in that scene with them. Like, oh, I like them together. There's something genuine between the two of them, even if he can't crystallize it. 
Yes. Even if he can't until the end of the movie realize that he needs to perhaps put himself aside. It's only in that moment where he's actively giving the bribe over to a person who handcuffs himself to the bag of to the doctor's bag full of money with a chain that is seven <laughs> feet long. I was like, what is this about? Why put a um, a safe in your refrigerator, but yet not cover up the safe? Like if you yeah. were to open the fridge, you would see there was a safe there. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, you move a carton of milk and the carton of milk is actually a safe. It's just a safe in the fridge. But that moment for me, I also went, oh, this is one of 20 hiding spots he has. Right. Well, by the way, this movie, for all we're talking about how it's good and twisty and turny, I mean, there are some real leaps of logic. We talked about breaking into a National White House transmission. I do want to even just mention the core of the film uh, or the third actor. Are you talking about burying an Edsel? Is that, or are you talking oh, about the mile of cars? The stampede? I, I, well, I'm even talking about something even different, which is like <laughs> right. the lawsuit about how they've edited her, um, her TV oh. commercial. Like right. that seems the most to be the most provable thing to be like, Oh no, here's the script. And someone definitely manipulated it. She doesn't even seem to have any defense. You're telling me Lenny and Squiggy can't figure this out? Yeah. Lenny and Squiggy were able to break into a national broadcast. They can't figure out that the, the thing's been messed with? Like, that to me was such a logic jump. And the fact that she has no defense for it, like, she's like, mm, like, just to shrug it off. Like, like it would have been better if they went over there and convinced her, like, hey, let me give you a tip on how to shoot your first commercial. Say this. And she didn't know, and they trapped her into a lie. Instead, they go in this convoluted route doing something she didn't say where there is a script. You actually show the script in the movie. Like, there is proof. There's evidence. They could have just gone across the street and said, hey, honey. Like, I'm using the character's voice, not my my own way of talking. Wow. Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> hey, know, honey. Uh, you know, wow. uh, let, let, me, uh, let me help you do this. And they could have tricked her. Like, it would have even been more effective in a weird way. In both this scene that you're talking about, Paul, when the bad Jack Warden alters her commercial and in the previous stuff, I wrote down a note because I was like, in this movie, there's so much AV explanation because this kind of stuff like moving, moving words around or breaking in using satellite feeds and all this stuff was so brand new. It's like James Bond shit. They really had to walk people through. But then the, in the in the Lenny and Squiggy version of it, there are jokes. The best being when they explain that Squiggy has put a pacemaker <sighs> into Lenny, like they're biohacking in like whatever <laughs> year this movie was made. I was 1980. like, I was like, is does he need a pacemaker? If if so, he should go and get a real one done. Like, what is what is going on? And he brags about the pacemaker by hitting it. And there's such yeah. a good performance moment from McKean where he winces. Oh yeah, I love yes, that. The best. Uh, there's there's just a lot of again in a movie that is pretty straightforwardly just a war between used car lots, there's a, a bizarre amount of it hinges on AV uh, <laughs> uh, components. Well, that's that's the Zemeckis thing, right? Like that weird tech obsession. Like they're, these guys are kind of gearheads. Like, yeah, you know, that's true, I the guess. The next movies yeah. they're going to make are the Back to the Futures, the Who Frame Roger cars. Rabbit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I guess it is this idea too. It's like, it's this very contemporary moment that it's depicting, but... 
It is cutting. He's going to he's going to insist on saying, but yet there is cutting edge technology out there that we have access to. Let me just give you a glimpse. Let me let me show you. It's almost like let me show you Jack Warden uh, generation, the greatest generation. Let me show you old man what we can do now. And he's like, what? You can do this? You know, like, it really is like, it's an explainer for old people. It it is funny, as you said, that they just cut into the middle of one of those courthouse scenes. And Grandpa Munster says, like, and because there's no evidence of tampering of the video footage. Like, they just don't show you the part where somehow that is completely disproven, even though it should be very provable. Like, Eugene, uh, sorry, Joe Flaherty uh, basically goes, I have expert testimony to say it hasn't right. been tampered with right that's so, what oh, we're is. just yes. believing the prosecutor and i i grandpa al lewis love grandpa al uh incredible uh and the fact that he's the hanging judge and all over his judge's table are like little effigies of like hanging i don't know like you know it's that to me little is a models, right? Yeah, little yes. models of the electric chair, little working models, models. <laughs> little yes, working yes. models of a hangman's platform, so that when he's talking, he can activate it, and the little man drops and hangs. It's so good. When I was a kid, that's what I thought a judge was. That it was mostly just like you banging things to make things happen. That was the role of a judge. And the fact that the hanging judge is assigned. Well, I mean, there's so many things assigned to this like (laughs) weird wording of a local commercial. Like it's so there's so many things. It's, it's so sitcom-y though. Like, you know, and that like casting Joe Flaherty and, and Al Lewis and Lenny and Squiggy, right? Like he's trying to like, you know, invest that all into this movie. Right. This is a heightened universe. Right. Which is great because you've got you. I think if you're Zemeckis, you know, on the other side of it, You've got Jack Warden. You've got some. You've got people who are going to ground it to a to a, enough of a degree that it's not going to float away into the sky. Everybody, because everybody, make no mistake, everybody is a capital C character yes. in this movie. Mm-hmm. Everybody, even like, and I forget the actor's name, the guy who won't drive the red car. Yes, uh, he's like a De Palma regular. His name is Garrett Graham. And he's great. And he is, you know, um, you know, Kurt Russell's of he's the other salesman at the at the used car lot. And he's kind of uh, Kurt Russell's partner in crime. This the, the set piece where they bet against different teams for a game. Oh, my God. And he tries to get bad luck inside of a bar <laughs> he's for 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 like salt, two yeah. minutes for solid two minutes he runs around a bar knocking over salt shakers opening umbrellas how are there that many umbrellas in this <laughs> in this place that is one of the most original yes and hilarious yes. set pieces i've ever seen in the sense that oh you've seen very like you've seen so many of these things you know, in different variations. I've never seen trying to get bad luck. No. And again, they are so smart. This just sets us up for why he won't drive that car yes. at the end. Yes. This like how extreme his reaction is in the bar. And it's extreme. And it is funny. You know, it is not raining out. And ev- there must be 15 umbrellas, closed umbrellas inside that bar. And the restraint that they took to break glass, I mean, or break a mirror, because yes. we all know yes. that's yes. a big one. Uh, and, you know, he found many a thing 
before breaking a mirror. That's the totally. artistry of, of Zemeckis and Gale in this period is like they are able to look you in the eyes and convince you that the Chekhov's gun in the wall is just decoration. They're like, I know you know how movies work. I swear to God, this is just a funny joke. It's yeah. not a plot setup. I, I don't know, uh, uh, Jason and Paul, if you had this thing, but like as people who write comedy, when I recognized, oh, fuck, this scene is now going to be him trying to create as much bad luck as possible. I got vaguely angry at how good a setup that is. Oh, like when yeah. you just see like you so rarely see a set piece in a comedy where you go, wow, that's actually an original idea I haven't seen before. It's not a take on a on a classic. It, I was I also had the thought I was like, oh, I can't believe I've never seen this. This movie's forty years old, and yeah. you're like, fuck! This is the only time anyone's done this. I I love comedy as magic in the sense <sighs> of there's a, a Chappelle special. I don't remember what it was, and he basically says at the top like. I'm going to make this thing funny. Like, you don't think I can make this thing funny or here's the punchline. He does something like that. He goes away for it for 15 minutes and then he gets back to it and he hits it. And you're like, oh, like it just, it, like I love like saying like, it's here it is. I'm showing it to you. And then they kind of sneak around. And this movie does a lot of that. It just, it really like plants those seeds really nicely. And it's so fulfilling when it pays off. There's something wonderful about discovery, mm. you know, um, true discovery. Yes. Like, 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 uh, like unexpected. That's what makes things funny, right? You know, uh, when you really are surprised by or discover something along with the characters. And that is, for all intents and purposes, what is what is I think exciting about performing and what I think is also fun about watching improv because uh, improv uh, is all discovery, not just for the uh, audience, but the performers as well. Everybody in the equation is seeing this for the first time be done. And that, that discovery is exciting when it works. And in this scene, I was like, this is, such a great game, mm. you know, yeah. uh, such a good game to play. They are against each other. They've bet against each other. And this man is going to try and engender as much bad luck as he can in order to win his bet uh, on this game. And it also is a great friendship moment, a great character moment, which yes. is kind of like, that's the other thing. It works so nicely because you buy this bond between these two guys. But you also get why he then is sitting on the side of the road later and is like, I can't do it, man. I can't. It's a red car, man. It's a red. I was like, fuck, yes, I love this. That scene accomplishes like five things at the same time. One of them is you think that's the Chekhov's gun going off of right. the superstition. That's the ultimate heighten that it's not going to pay off with the red car later. Two is it actually sells the bond between these characters, right? Three yeah. is it's a great device for device's sake. But also talking about how like Gail and Zemeckis do these sorts of payoffs without holding your hand, ironically for guys who had just made a movie called I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, it, it, it's that thing, that storytelling principle, and I think especially with comedy, that's so satisfying where you don't spell it out for the audience. You give them one and one and allow them to make two together that you sort of have them betting on the game. He's bombing. Russell's depressed. Garrett Graham comes in. He's like, this is amazing. I'm so glad I bet you should have bet on this. I did. I bet on the other team. The sinking realization, him saying, how much did you bet? everything the only way you can win is if <laughs> i lose he says that you know this guy's internal mantra which is 
every superstition matters, right? And then he knocks over the salt. He doesn't say anything, but he slowly prepares to knock over the salt as like the The, the other guy gives him the salt, yes! which is even better. Which is even such a great, small, slight move. It's also, again, not to interrupt you, Griffin, but definitely to interrupt you. Um, It's also wonderful in a way to illustrate um, Kurt Russell's character. And it's not even brought up between them. Kurt Russell has, they've talked earlier about the bet the friend has made. Kurt Russell has knowingly bet against his friend. (laughs) Yes. By the way, another be- the bet that he made based on superstitions. Like again, it's exactly. a beautifully, he it's beautifully instead, crafted. Yes, he are he takes the opposite bet. He's such a, a, a contrarian. He he he's actively working against one of his best friends in in, in search of his own selfish success. Right, which is great. And like Jim, the mechanic slides over the salt. He knocks it over. You know, slowly unscrews the top. Knocks it over right at the moment. Like the play gets fumbled and then he just sort of has that wide eyed look and you realize like they have set up an entire mousetrap board in front of my eyes and I didn't even (laughs) realize it. And now they can just go (laughs) off. Now he can do fucking anything. Jim, the mechanic, by the way, Frank McRae, right? Who's like he's he was like a football player. right? He's in so many like, yeah, he is actively rising to the challenge of like, I don't care how big any of you guys are going. I will be bigger. I'm going to be the largest performance in this movie, like by hook or by crook. The Gale anecdote is that because he had come from sports, he didn't come from a traditional acting background. I've been acting for a while, but like, you know, had different schools of thought. He, when they started filming, would say every one of his lines as slowly as possible. And Jack Warden was like, what are you doing? And he was like... <laughs> See, it's smart. If you say your lines slowly, then you end up with more screen time in the movie. And Jack oh, Warden wow. was like, kid, I've been making pictures for 60 years. If you say your lines that slowly, they're going to cut around you. You got to say it quick. And that way they have to use everything you say. So then <laughs> Jack Warden put the fear of God in him and his game became, I have to say every line as quickly as possible, oh, which then so Gail and Zemeckis used to motivate their actors to say, try to even outspeed right. him. Like, let's let's be at wow. this tone at the whole time. Wow. Let's get this energy going. The right. whole energy of the movie was sort of reverse engineered from that. That's, That's amazing. amazing. Unbelievable. I love right? that. And he's great. I loved when he, yeah. when they charge him with being a car salesman, so not just the mechanic. And he's yes. trying to get that guy in the car. There's, there's just great. Everybody gets moments to be yeah. great in this movie. Everybody gets to have their character developed like two more steps than movies now do. You know, like like now an ensemble movie um, doesn't give you those character beats for the kind of fourth and fifth bananas. You know, like they don't give you information. They don't give you enough to really root for them the way that movies here in this era did. They This movie, you know, they really leaned into getting you to care about these other characters because of the just just little beats here and there like that scene where you know Garrett, they Garrett plays the dead dog uh prank on the uh, on the set, on the guy in the station wagon it's amazing and the fact that we see everybody at home watching those commercials and then those are the same people who show up to the car lot yeah. 
the next day to buy those cars. You see that that guy and his family, and then you see them buy the station wagon. I, I think that there's something to be said for simplicity in comedy in big movies because this movie is complicated in some of the decisions that are going on, but at the end of the day, it's just really an us versus them. It's it's just like, how do we shut down that other dealership? Things get in the way of it, but it allows you to have a lot of scenes of these characters just kind of hanging out. It's the ensemble the ensemble nature of it. I, I think Ghostbusters number one kind of exists in that same world where it's like, yes, they're, they're getting ghosts, but at the same time, you're just, you're just existing in these guys owning a business and the ups and downs of that. And, and I don't know, you, you get to like every one of those characters because there's no other real world outside of it. It really is in that station. And you, occasionally at his, House. You also get to know a little bit more about Annie Potts. You also get to yeah. L- yeah. know a little, you get to know more of their other life issues and stories, the supporting cast, yeah. you know, um, in a way that now uh, you just, you just don't, you know, supporting players are oftentimes there as, you know, pieces of the mechanism to trigger, you know, th- this movie where we talked about how this movie is a little longer than perhaps it we feel like it would normally be. And it's longer because of these moments, because of these shaggier beats where you're like, now people would be like, we don't need to know that much about the uh, the other salesman, actually, because he's not that important right, at the end. Right. He, can, he can just come in and save the day. Let's take out his whole thing with the dog. Yeah. But you guys n- know this just as well as anybody. So often the supporting roles in these types of films are just like, here's a slot for us to cast a ringer or someone who's on the verge of a breakout, let them show up to set and just riff and score some big laughs in that scene. Just like fill it up with whatever funny you can while delivering whatever the exposition is that needs to get across in this scene. And what Zemeckis and Gale are so good at doing is disguising plot as character or humor. Making things just feel like this is just charming. This is fun behavioral stuff. This is just a joke. But actually, they're setting a piece in the back of your brain that they can use later. Ghostbusters, I love, but Ghostbusters is like half a very behavioral comedy with all this great character building and then the plot of the ghost shit. And it's kind of an amazing, miraculous accident that it ends up feeling cohesive. Whereas this, it's all unified. Like, that's why Ghostbusters 2 is so flawed is because they focus on the ghost ship, but they don't focus on the characters. Let me ask a question that I maybe it will be taken the wrong way. I don't I don't mean to I don't mean to slam this person. Oh, are you about to slam Griffin? Oh, no. (laughs) I was going to say, is Deborah Harmon, Deborah Harmon, who plays Barbara Fuchs, is she not a good actress? I, I liked her, but she never really works again after this movie. And I and I, it feels to me like a like I mean, maybe this is the thing of the eighties where you get one shot as like a female lead and then you just are hmm. gone. But she really is gone. Like she's in Bachelor she, yeah, she Party. She just does like sitcom stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised at that. She's fine. Like she's perfectly appealing. There's nothing about her in this movie where you're like unlike some of the people we've been talking about where you're like, I got to know so much more about this person. Like, give me, you know, give me some big scene for this person right. versus like Garrett Graham or whoever. If I have a criticism of the movie, which I do, and it is this, which I wrote down in my notes is they do her a tremendous disservice mm. by not writing that role at all. Yeah. Like that role is so passive um uh she yeah. is she comes in without any engine 
We don't know. She's just coming to just see her dad. Right. That's it. Right. And that's yeah. all we know. We She's been gone for 10 years. The guys don't know her. By the time she gets there, her father is dead. They don't feel any allegiance to her. And so she basically, and she shows up so late in the film without, um, without a want Without any sort of discernible drive, She's an it's obstacle. hard for her. That's her problem. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a problem where the the movie they they've underwritten her so much that that she only exists to kind of further the plot that they've already set in motion, uh, and yeah. just kind of play a part passively in being used. You know, let me recast it and say, uh, yeah, Julie Haggerty coming out sure. of sure. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. coming out of like a cult. A little bit more like uh, injured or wounded because she can kind of play that. But then I feel like that's what you kind of need. You needed someone to play something of the character. And I think you could have hit all the other things. But I think that she's not comedy forward, right? That's Where everybody else I is kind of. Yeah. I, I she's do not that funny, she, yeah. I think she's a good actress, but but perhaps for this role to work, you needed to bring someone in who was a comedian to find some Shelley comedy Long. in a role that does not have Shelley Long. Much right. Then she'd have like, a yes. bit. I mean, right. her only bit is like essentially Kurt Russell being like, uh oh, how do I like not tell her her dad is dead? Like, you know, she right. doesn't get to do her own thing versus basically everyone else in this movie at least gets a moment like a side plot well it's really it's tough to drop somebody in the middle of the movie right who is unaware of the plot of the movie she you know like and she purposefully so purposefully (laughs) so she is yes purposefully like she cannot know what we've been doing for the last hour you know, and that's a yeah. tough thing to play. I felt bad for that actress because I feel like she's in a thankless position. But she can, and I'm not blaming it fully on her, but to lean into the cult of it all. And, and if you go like in my mind, I'm thinking cult, there's uh, not a lot of consumerism in a cult, right? So then to come into this world that's fueled by consumerism, mm-hmm. it could be a really funny juxtaposition. Like she's the naive person coming into this. More- can I say something? Yeah. When I missed, some line where they said she was coming out of a cult. That was when I, Jack I Warden said it. He goes, my daughter just called me after 10 years. She's been, I didn't know where she was. She was in a cult, right? Such so, a quick throwaway. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I okay. just heard it because That's I thought one, he was I, I missed that. Yeah. Like, um, okay. But I mean, again, okay. it's not led with it, but I think it, it gives you the explanation of why he hasn't seen her in 10 years and makes him also a good dad. Right, because he's excited to see her, but she's been yeah. away not because of him, because she was his, on her own. Right. Yeah, like, and he's willingly accepting her back. It's 1980. There's a lot of people who like had become flower children, right? right. Or had just like gone oh, off yeah. and lived in a commune or whatever. Like, it, For it, sure. it, it, it all lines up, and he's just like, ah, I don't get it. All I get is Edsel. There's like, like you know, legitimately like, 12 documentaries right now we could all watch <laughs> right, about right. about like actual cults yeah. that existed during the 70s. Right. It's, you know, did you know uh, about the Wisconsin? Th- Three, like it's always, right. it's always some new from, like, from rural like spot the, in America. From the yeah. evil ones to the benign ones, like or to <laughs> right. the what's the the family the one that the fan the oh, right. they, they had the health food oh, restaurant yes. in in LA. Yes. There's them. There's uh yeah yeah Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. There's everybody had a cult. But it speaks Yoga to how cult, passive right. this character is. That a like even that setup is just to make Jack Warden look better for not having spoken to his daughter in a decade, and it's never played comedically as any sort of characterization. Well, she just exists to help every male character be set up in whatever they need to accomplish. Within well, the let movie. me ask yeah. the ex- experts then: Is this 
something that you see in all of Zemeckis films. Are the female characters more mm. underwritten? Because I mean, well, I'm thinking not about. Not in I Want to Hold Your Hand. Because no. okay. that's three female leads. And so Kathleen Turner. The thing that's sort of intriguing about it. And yeah. Kathleen Turner is amazing. Yeah, right, right. But then, uh, and She's Back to the character. Future, like there's, uh, you know, uh, I, I think Lorraine's a great character. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. No, right, yeah. I, I don't think that's certainly a case. I think uh, Jenny in Forrest Gump isn't an Polar underwritten Express. character. Polar, Polar Express. Express. <laughs> yeah. The train. The train but is I a think's woman. crawling with yeah. ladies. Uh, Tom Hanks no, plays three women in Polar Express. <laughs> 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 like Jenny is like a problematic character, but she's certainly not underwritten. I think this is a weird example, but it, it ties into what you are asking, Paul. Of like, if she was a good actress, why didn't she have a better career? Putting aside just general sexism in the industry, a thing that's come up, I feel like anytime we get into 80s comedies on this show is like 80s comedies were the absolute worst era for for actresses, because I I think you look at like early comedies, you look at screwball comedies, you have these women like Rosalind Russell and Catherine Hepburn, Barbara Stanwyck, who are like tough broads who hold their own. Right. And then even to the 60s and 70s, you have like Goldie Hawn and Barbara Streisand and all these people. And then the 80s, they really just start to become like one note love interests or like obstructions. And you have so many actresses where you're like, Oh, it's weird that Beverly Hills Cop is still one of the highest grossing movies of all time. And I have no idea who the female lead of that movie Absolutely. is. Absolutely. And, 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 and if, if, if it wasn't for the post career of Gina Davis, she disappears after Fletch because in Fletch, She's not doing right. anything. Like, but she's not I, even the female lead. She's in the office. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, right. Yeah. You're, you're forgetting she, Dana Wheeler Nicholson. Oh, my right. God. That's yeah. the actual. Yes. That's the point. That's, you're in your mind relating it. Right. Yeah. And yep. I was going to cite her as another example of like, who's the love interest in Fletch? We don't know. Uh, Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters is the one major example. And I think it's only because she was already a movie star. Like right. she was batting above her weight class. So they had to give her more to do. But for the most part in this era, Thankless. you know, um, these are uns- male ensemble movies. Yeah. All of those John Landis, uh, Harold Ramis, all of those movies are male uh, ensembles who are not really interested no. in women other than conquerable um, uh, sexual conquests or, right. like you said, Griffin, impediments uh, to getting fur- getting further to where they need to go. And so as a result... Unless it is a a, a romantic uh, movie like Kathleen Turner in Romance in the right. Stone, which I think is an incredible performance. When it's like it pointedly is, a two-hander based on their push. Exactly. Point. But yeah. there are fewer of those yeah. that you can, than there are the kind of big, you know, big, you know, Revenge of the Nerds, Porky's, the big, right. the big sex comedies of that era, the big, you know, it's, it's interestingly at the same time, a period in which women are also suddenly eroticized as um, villains mm. in erotic mm. thrillers. Yes. You know, like it's yeah, the same time when things like that. Yes. Speaking of Kathleen yes, Turner. exactly. When women are also starting to like kill people yes. and are like dangerous. Right. The 80s are also like the same era when the, the guy's like, well, whoever this guy is, he must be he must have a real kill. And then later he has to be like, wait, it's a woman. What? <laughs> but it, that's also it's the 80s moralism where it's swinging to like 
all men are pigs. He can't trust him. But also like, you know, cheating on your wife or whatever, like that'll bring doom and death upon your family. Like we're, we're swinging away from the more like swinging seventies back to like more like, no, you don't, you don't want to mess around with Glenn Close. Like she's going to, she, it's going to be bad news. I wonder if there's a conservatism. way of, or a thought process in the eighties with women in these comedy films. Like we don't want to get them in the muck with these men we respect them so much that we're out we're not going to make them funny we're we're going to make them a moral high ground right yeah and there's that sneaking suspicion that that her character kind of exists because it's like well for kurt russell to be cool he should be like getting laid in the movie right like i i I did wonder about that kind of halfway through where i'm like is she just there because he needs a love interest because like that's part of the five tool belt you know of like a male lead in an 80s movie he needs her for the end, and because she provides redemption, uh, because without her, he doesn't care about the dealership ultimately. Like he's just trying to get to the fifty thousand. Right. So even if she was not there, would he have gotten the fifty thousand, and then the dealership would have collapsed? Like, like is yeah. that what the plan was? Yeah, right. The only reason at the <laughs> right. end he still wants to save the dealership is because he cares for her. And the last line is nice because the last line of the movie is finally her getting into the the mess. Right. Right. The last line of the movie is her now realizing there's value to being a huckster. But it's the last fucking line. Like we never right. get to yeah. see her play. And when she's on the stand, the bit is that mm. she cannot even defend herself. Like she's nonverbal and Kurt Russell has to feed her lines. But it, but when yeah. we meet her, the first time we meet her, she's giving him a hard time about the yellow taxi cabs that are yes. repainted. And she knows. So she also shows us I am a part of this game. I grew up in this game. Right. But then that, she doesn't that's have when it any feels of that like game. it should be fun right. that she gets it, that yes. it's her background. But then they sort of like defang her. And I do wonder if it's going back to the 80s, sort of like, uh, uh, you know, Puritan sort of sensibility where it's like the 70s, a lid comes off. We're now like you can get really outrageous behavior in comedies. Suddenly you're allowed to put things on screen and behavior on screen and language on screen that was never permittable before. But then that cuts the other way to this sort of like Madonna the whore complex where it's like, yeah. well, if we want the love interest to be compelling to the audience, she can't get too sullied by the boy's misbehavior because she has well, to be best a good version. Girl. The most perfect iteration of this is Sally Field being cast mm. in yes, exactly. Smokey and the Bandit. Right. Let the flying you know? nun yeah. be the Smokey's yes, love let interest. Gidget, yes, let Gidget, you know, be uh, be totally. in the car with fucking Burt That's Reynolds. Like the right. ultimate bad boy. Right. And she's the ultimate good the girl. law. Yes, you know, and that's what's like, and that's such a, she, that's what, again, as we kind of get back to what we we're talking about before, like she brings what, as a movie star, she brings so much of her past to that counterculture movie, a car, a movie about, or Cannonball Fuck Run or any of these. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. About like this kind of like counterculture thing. And it's like the police are bullshit. Fuck this, blah, blah, blah. And she's in there in the passenger seat, like along for the ride, totally. you know? Totally. Yeah. And like you look at, once again, like Sigourney Weaver and Ghostbusters as an exception. In most comedies of this era, if a female comedy star gets some heat, 
it's not because she played the love interest. It's because she usually played like the Janine role or Gina Davis and Fletch, where it's like you get a couple of scenes. You don't have right, to be the popped. love interest. You could just have yeah. personality. You can have a right. little energy because Gina Davis and Fletch is not funny, but she I mean, and I, it's weird because I only can think of her now as Gina Davis. But like when you see that movie, I think she's just Gina Davis, Olympic archer. Yes. Yeah. But I will say, like the the breaking of that rule, going back to Julie uh, Julie Haggerty, or yes. probably the bigger one is Shelley Long, who comes right. out of TV and is yeah. like she is funny, and she's got her own sense of like what makes her funny. Uh, and Terry Gar, I think, oh, yes, Terry Gar, in this vein yes. as well yeah. around this time, absolutely. Yeah. But it's a it's a much shorter list that you have to kind of wrap your head around. Than it is for the men of that area where you could probably lift lift off like, you know, and and even Shelly Long, she's coming out of cheers where she's like, this is what I am. Everyone knows me. I'm like, I'm a comedy package ready to go. And they're still like, eh, we don't really have a lot for you. You know, it was still tough for Hollywood to find stuff for her to do. She had a very defined persona. Like you want to play a mom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. She had like five years before she became a mom. Yeah. No one's talking about like, oh my gosh. Mia Sarah and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I mean, she really hit some home right. runs there. You know, you know who pops in that movie is Jennifer Grey again because yes. yes. she right. gets to yes. be the little shithead. Yeah, right. she's it, so good. Which, in that movie. And then she goes on to have like a real like bunch. Yeah. Uh, goes on a run there. You know, it, yeah. it was she better knows, in yeah. this time period not to be the love interest. Absolutely, which, because yeah. that right. person you that that character is usually the equivalent of a manic pixie dream girl for that era, that person is usually put on a pedestal and is thought of as unimpeachably just like beautiful or something. Yeah. Something that is untouchable, which is why now I'm going to bring it full on back to Kurt Russell overboard is such an interesting dynamic because you've got him and you've got Goldie Hawn, Goldie Hawn starting as one type of a person and, and then turns into a different type of a, of a, of a person from like, it's almost like she's splitting the difference between the two archetypes Mm. and he is along for the ride. And you, you, that movie only makes sense because you're like, I think Kurt Russell's ultimately a good guy, not a piece of shit. Right. Um, Although it's a problematic idea. (laughs) Oh, deeply, deeply problematic. You believe that there's something salvageable in Kurt Russell, even if the character isn't showing it to you. And also just in the sense that, like, it's based around this guy trying to make this career move, even if it's for the wrong reasons, that he wants to be a corrupt politician, that he thinks he has a future, that there are places he can go past this dealership. And Kurt Russell is just filled with potential in a way that if it was George Hamilton, you'd be like, this guy is going to be stuck at a car dealership until he looks like Jack Warden. Right. You know, there's no way out for him. Absolutely. There doesn't, you know, like there's something hopeful about Kurt Russell. There is a future there. But if it was somebody who was closer to Jack Warden's age, you'd just be like, oh, it's a movie about like two old guys going to war with each other. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. You know, but there's something about Kurt Russell's down on his luck, but still has hope. Um, even if it's just like selfish, narcissistic kind of hope in himself, in his future as a corrupt politician. That's still a driving force enough, yeah. you know, in a way that you just don't, you know, I guess you we, we're we're drowning in TV antiheroes, but you don't see the same kind of storylines in movies as much anymore where where we're really tracking someone's bad behavior throughout and still rooting for them. I, and it, I feel like Gail and 
Zemeckis were such mechanics of this stuff. I mean, I'll get into it when we do our Back to the Future episode, but like, I've just been reading and watching all these fucking interviews with him, with them, where they explain all these decisions that you've never even thought about before that are such tiny micro things that that sort of disobey any conventional line of thinking in a pure algorithmic, like save the cat kind of way, but are things that just subtly shift your allegiances or your investment in certain characters to keep you on board. They just make every calculation correct by and large. They let they let the characters' choices guide the audience's response rather than manipulating the audience with moments. Yeah. They let the characters themselves be manipulated, thus conveying that to the audience rather than now. Save the Cat is a good example of what we do now, which is it's it's external things. Yeah. Right. Uh, rather than internal movement. And that is very different. You know, like the the idea that, you know, we we've retconned one of our greatest rogues, uh, Han Solo, into like he was always the best guy. He was right. always rooting for the underdog. He was always a good dude, you know, yeah. like is is shameful. Well, I mean, by the way, if that was to be the first of a trilogy. It's the worst place to start because <laughs> you are you you are solving that character's core problem mm. in a prequel in the first movie. You'd have to do so much twisting to kind of yeah. It's it's such a mess. It's like that's where you can to turn him that. into a new hope, Han Solo. Yeah, after Solo, a Star Wars story, you would have to like really destroy the guy <laughs> right yes. not only do they do they sort of solve this problem but they also kind of make it clear that his central problem was actually kind of a smokescreen to begin with um yeah th there was a, a a thing i found on like all these different interviews where gail keeps on saying like we had a really really specific philosophy when it came to comedy when bob and i were writing these movies which was we don't really have many jokes and our comedies are based on the idea that every character takes what they're doing incredibly seriously and the stakes are really high. And we believe if the circumstances are funny and the actors are keen enough comedically that their commitment and seriousness to the ridiculous of that world will be funny. And you do think about like yeah. how well that works for all of their films. It does. And that confidence of just like we have very few set up punchlines. It's really just asking people to buy in. And even something like the bad luck sequence is like, we're hoping that we've earned 90 minutes of investment at this point that'll pay out like a slot machine. That's funny, though, to think because this movie got crushed by Airplane at the box office, like yes. which is the opposite. Well, Airplane yes. is oh, wow. just jokes. Yeah, it's just jokes. No characters have any internal logic to them, right. nor do they need to. Like, it'll just we're just going to pummel you with jokes and you're going to enjoy it. And of course, it was, you know, a sensation. It comes out the week before this movie. Oh, I mean, man. like not to get wow. ahead of ourselves, but they they. uh Originally, we're supposed to make this film at Universal. Then uh, Universal passes. They pitch it to Frank Price at Columbia. And he's like, I worked at a used car dealership when I was young. I right. get this. I am so behind this movie. So like Sony was like really, or Columbia at the time was like really gung-ho about it. They do the test screening. It's the highest testing movie Columbia's right. ever had. What? Right. It, it was supposed to come out in August and they were like, fuck this. We're holding a hot hand. This comes out in 10 days. So they essentially pulled up the release 
Whoa! Well, yeah. not really having and the theaters in place. Right in airplanes path like right. literally like they, they just pulled it up so that it was just a and they also advertised it horribly like have you seen the posters they suck yes they advertised it horribly they didn't have the advertising plan in place uh, they advertise it on the car chase at the end i've, I've seen yes. posters where it's like yeah it's like almost like it's a mad 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 world kind of like yeah, the biggest right, car right. chase That's ever on vibe. screen yeah it's like and so much lemon they don't have Kurt Russell anywhere right yeah. yeah the teasers yeah. all lemon yeah, and the, it, the lemon it, thing yeah. yeah 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 but they pulled it up like six weeks they couldn't get the best theaters they wanted so they were like we'll just release it everywhere that can play it now and then we'll get the better theaters in six weeks but by six weeks it was out the marketing was oh. bad and also not in place yet and it was just like it disappeared like airplane was the sensation it was like a landmark comedy wow what a, that is amazing and it's just like that's the problem it's like once airplane is out it's like uh-oh like the whole right. the whole world of comedy movies just got re reorganized and yeah. we're not in the you know like now we're not cool like if this had come out whatever five months earlier maybe i was just gonna but, say yeah. timing is so important in these in these yeah. moments yeah yeah and they joke on the commentary like it probably should have been a Bill Murray movie. It would have been a hit if it was a Bill Murray movie. And in that sense, yes, it probably would have been a hit when it came out if it was a Bill Murray movie. But also for all mm. the reasons we've underlined, it wouldn't be as good. It wouldn't hold up as well today. Yeah, it wouldn't. And also that's very early for Bill Murray. Like yes. he's done meatballs by that point, basically. Yeah. Like Caddyshack is about to come out, I guess, around there. Right. Like, you know, that's that's like early Murray. Bill Murray would have been. I mean, it would have been good. It would just have been a Bill Murray movie. I think it would just be yeah. like, and it that, that's its own thing. We would remember it in the pantheon of Bill Mur good Bill Murray movies, but it would not be an ensemble movie no, the way no. this is. It would have just all hung yeah. on Bill Murray. You would have talked over you know, all the right. supporting characters, not in a bad way, but it would have been, I mean, I'm a big, I'm the biggest Bill Murray fan, but it would have just been like, you would have, I feel like Bill Murray, again, he's the, the planner. And I think Kurt Russell's reacting to the plans around him. You need that earnest investment, yeah. you know, that Kurt Russell provides. Well, it's Bill Murray is not good at playing someone who is um, invested. Uh, yes, invested and also losing the thread, mm. barely keeping it together. Bill yeah, Murray's yeah, guys, right. Bill Murray's guys are always like, don't worry, I got he's this. Above right. you know, like, yeah, he's above the conflict. He doesn't even care. He's above yeah. the conflict. He's above the, he, if the thing dies, who cares? Right. I'm all right. right. You know? If everyone's like, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to save the planet? And he's just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Kurt Russell, you need Kurt Russell here to be like, fuck, I need this. I oddly you think know? if he was to seduce her, it would have been sleazier. Absolutely. Like, yes. Much. Definitely. Right. Yes. In, He's in a sleazy persona, for sure. Right. right? That's part of the sort of edgy appeal. You yeah. believe, like in Groundhog Day or like in so many other things, you believe Bill Murray's, you know, root to be he's only out for himself. Yeah. You know, he is without generosity in that way, you yeah. know? Uh, and that that's the lesson Scrooge. That's mm. the lesson Bill Murray seems to always need to learn is to care about other people. Yeah. But we don't know that he actually ever really learns it. Here in this movie, that's the lesson that Kurt Russell needs to learn. And you get it immediately. Like, he's on track to figuring this out. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And, and yeah. in the same way that it all boils down to Russell being able to pull off the, like, two and a half line version of that love confession in a way that Bill Murray couldn't with two and a half pages. Uh, I also think that was another 
deterrent against this movie being a hit was just like, if you don't have a concise marketing campaign, if you're rushing it into theaters very suddenly, if people look at a poster that's like, it's a used car dealership movie with a lemon on the poster starring the Disney guy, like, what the fuck is this? That pitch makes no sense to audiences if you haven't really worked to communicate it to them. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, that's a failing. That's I mean, I'm sh- and I'm sure that's why this movie is not thought of as like a, one of these cuz it should this movie should be in that kind of clutch of classic late Early 70s 80s, 80s comedies, comedies yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh without a doubt, this movie is like this is a and I'm I'm amazed it took me so long to see this. Well, movie, no, yeah. You know? I mean, um, it's interesting that it also hasn't like rebounded like people have found it because yeah. it does feel like a movie that, like this, like, oh, how, why aren't we, why hasn't this been unearthed? There's enough right. great stuff in Kurt here. Kurt Russell's in it. Yeah. 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 It's odd that it still stays under the surface with the cast, with the premise. It captures an era. And the filmmakers. Yes. Like, I didn't even ask you guys, but I'm assuming, yeah, you both like Zemeckis. Like, I assume yes. like that's a guy. Yeah. I'm right. medium. And I, see, I'm a medium on Zemeckis, you okay. know? Um, so for me, like this, I'm like, like, why does, like, why we reclaim certain, what, what I would say, we, we've reclaimed like sorcerer, we've reclaimed. Mm. We're saying, you know what? Everybody was wrong. Friedkin made a masterpiece. We're deciding now, you know, uh, that, that, that was an amazing movie. We don't do that comedically really mm. we don't mm. we don't go back and elevate used cars now and say wait a minute this is an actually this is an incredible movie we might we we still will do it now with heaven's gate heaven's gate is actually not a bad you yeah. know what heaven's gate's actually a pretty amazing movie well let's reevaluate let's recontextualize all of these kind of 70s auteur um their kind of their lost movies yes. and let's find ways to make them to elevate them we don't do that with i comedy. also feel like comedy for the most part is of its time and people don't look backwards yes there are classic comedies but i imagine that for most people uh it's like who's going back and watching police academy those were like the biggest movies of all time i also feel the same way about beverly hills cop which i love like beverly hills cop is one of my favorite films. I just watched Beverly Hills Cop 2 two oh, nights ago. Wow. I mean, I love these movies. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. It's, an, uh, it's a Tony Scott Tony movie. Scott. It's amazing. It's a great action movie. It's yes. also a pretty good comedy, but the Tony Scott part of it it's is like kind an of okay almost comedy, the great better part movie. of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 right, right. It's a, it's a good sequel in the sense that if they didn't have the first one, the second one wouldn't be as good because I think they knew what they could steal from the first one to make the action of the second one better right like they kind of yeah they, it was a weird alchemy in that um that i think makes it work and makes it flashy but uh but we don't go back for the most part like yes there are the beloved movies and i think we talk a lot about oh people are realizing like oh pop star was really good or mcgruber was really good just mm. movies that the lonely island did, yeah you know uh but <laughs> right those are those are the ones right where it's like they have the long shelf life on Hot Rod. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, right we're just yeah. right any we're just promoting movie. lonely island but, but movies I think th- Yeah, that's a big difference. (laughs) I think when we go back, it's in a very short period of time. Like, I can think of some other comedies that weren't hits when they came out that became cult hits, but it happened within the very compressed Sandberg-esque timeline of, like, 
Big Lebowski got rehabilitated fast. A Christmas Story got yes. rehabilitated fast. It's only like it's it underperforms when it comes out in theaters. It goes to TV, and within three years, Id- idiocracy. Everyone, that's right. one right. Yes. Idiocracy. Like there's a few where it's like, hey, you know what? This turned. This was ahead of its time. But Idiocracy whatever. didn't have a chance to succeed. At all. Right. Idiocracy no. came out no, in it one just theater or two nothing. theaters. Right. Yeah. So it's right. like, oh, we are discovering this thing that didn't even really puncture the surface, and I feel like. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just an interesting debate because comedies are, I think that younger people don't care about comedy history. I think where you can be like, oh, I love a certain director. And mm. I think comedy directors often are slighted in the grand scheme of things. A hundred percent. I also think that comedies are a lot more of their yes. time than uh, genre movies or dramas because genre and drama transcends time, really. And comedy usually reflects the taste the comedic taste of that era, you know, so to put on, you know, in the midst of like the naturalistic Judd Apatow kind of comedy scene we've been in for the last whatever, 15 or so years, naturalistic performances, real life circumstances to to say to someone who's come up in this time here, watch Liar Liar right. or right. watch here, <laughs> watch Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Yeah. This is what was a normal comedy a person would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, comedy is so reactionary, both in terms of what it's saying in dialogue with the culture at the time, but also what it's saying in dialogue with the comedies that have come in right before it. And like the Apatow movement is 100% a retort to this has become $20 million, star above the title, super high concept premise. Jim Carrey yes. can't lie. Magical realism, like like all the movies have some sort of weird magical element or some, yeah, like there's some crazy. Let me tell you, yes. let me tell you yeah. right now, just out of curiosity, I typed into Google, uh, best uh, comedies of 2019, right? Mm. This is comedies of 2019, mm. according to Google. So there may be a. Little, this won't be depressing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so Spider-Man: Far From Home. Yeah. Well, you're not. You're not far <laughs> off. So oh, the boy. number one is Long Shot, which uh, I am in, but I also think is a great again movie that came out. That's a comedy. Comedy, yeah. but didn't get its due. Kind of found its way uh, in its. Uh, Right, like, release. Ha- has gotten a, a sort of reassessment within eight months of its release. If it happens, it happens quickly. And and it's and that was also uh, because they decided to release it the week after Endgame opened, which yeah. was a problem. Then the second comedy, The Hustle, the remake of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, with, I love it. With I love Hathaway, it. Film, right? right. So yes. that's all right. So that's <laughs> I mean, it's definitely a comedy, but that was shelved for a long time that they tried to hide behind yeah. Avengers Endgame. And it then made 75 million. Then fighting with my family, that wrestling uh, movie yep. that's you know that's Stephen a Merchant directed movie, movie. Barely yeah. exactly. a comedy. Barely yeah. com- I like that yeah. movie, but barely a comedy. Yeah, and then it goes to Booksmart, which Booksmart, you know, great, you know, indie movie, great, 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 but an uh, indie. Always be my maybe Netflix movie, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Beach Bum, the Matthew McConaughey. Harmony movie. Then they go once upon a time in Hollywood. Right. Now we're stretching Hilarious. definitions wow. here. And yeah. then we're going right, Pokemon right. Detective Pikachu. Like, so like, uh, all, I mean, there were laughs. Laughs. <laughs> uh, of course, but like, no, I I, you're absolutely right. There are, there are no, well, I mean, this yeah. speaks to my, a much larger conversation that we could all have that I would be, that I would love to have is the state of, I, just as somebody who, writes and yeah. acts and, and works in this business. The state of feature film comedies is 
in is in disarray. Guys, I eulogize you know, like, yeah. this at least once every yeah, five Griffin, episodes. Griffin is on that horse. Yeah. This is Crazy. we're we're in an era where people because I mean, listen, this is for me, and I've been in movies that suffer from this, and I've you know whatever. Comedies have now decided we don't care about visual storytelling oh, at all. And so people don't feel like they need to go to the movies to see something that is visually unspectacular because they can wait and watch the jokes at home, right. not realizing right. what's fun is to laugh along with an oh, audience. By the way, this is only going to get worse because a movie like Palm Springs, which I think is a, a really fun, great movie. I really enjoyed it. But now it's like, oh, great. It, it's almost reinforcing it where Tenet is pushing off and off and off. You know, and, and I know we're in a weird right. time, but. but like Palm Springs, throw it right onto Hulu. You know, you're yeah, right, right. You're right. I saw Palm Springs at Sundance with an audience who didn't know what they were in for. And it was like a wonderful crowd experience. I would have loved like, that in the crowd. To feel them all cluing in. Yes. Mm. Which is why it then sold for like $14 million or whatever. Yeah. Like I, yeah. it's a, re it's a record breaking Sundance sale because of how well it played with audiences. They thought this could cross over. Yes. Well, here's what I'll say. And this is my only, and I am on, I am on team comedy. I agree with what everybody here is saying. The one positive about going direct to VOD is the lack of bigger advertising. So I was able to go into Palm Springs Going yeah. like, I don't know anything about this movie. And the same thing for uh, the uh, Be My Maybe. Like, I don't know anything about it. I'm just going to, based on the stars, I will hit play because I have nothing invested in it. And it made both of those films, to me, that much sweeter. Because I was like, oh, I didn't see the 10 jokes in the trailer. I didn't get blocked over the head. Now, I'm not saying that they should make them. But there was something really enjoyable from a comedic perspective. Where I was like, oh, I, I was totally surprised. But what we don't have anymore are those centerpiece, those movies, like the the last kind of comedy that everybody, like, so it used to be that every, like, I, I always gauge it by like, my, I'm a comedian, so everybody I know is dialed into comedy, mm. you know, big and small and rare and broad and whatever. But when I talk to like my cousins, you know, like when I'm like, what's the last big comedy you saw? A lot of times my cousins will be like, I don't know, Bridesmaids? Uh, yeah, that feels like the last you know I mean? one like, that really right. sort of like tied the culture. And that's yeah. kind yes. of it. Bridesmaids and then yeah. maybe dot, 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 Game Night. Maybe. Like, game Night's one another right? one where it, like, rules. Yes. it yeah. did it did pretty well and has grown only in the 18 months. Yeah. Guys, unfortunately, yeah. I have to jump right now. I'm sorry to end this conversation oh. in this moment where I'm so passionate about things. But continue. And uh, I'm, I apologize. Do you have any final passing words here. on the stage? Uh, yeah, final yeah, thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Sign let's, off. Let's go back and try to unearth these comedies because I think yeah. there's something to be found. Like when we talked about the set piece that we, all of us have never seen before, there is worth there to applaud these performers that we've forgotten about that we can, even as uh, people who make things, reuse. Like let's get some of these people back in the mix because they are legitimately... Uh, funny and they should be held up. I, I, I want to go back and watch other movies now because they were too old for me when they came out. Like just to kind of get back in there. I think I don't revisit comedies at all. I revisit the ones that I love, but not the ones that I've never seen. So mm. that's my, that's it. All right. right. Thank you. Bye guys. Paul uh, Shear. And that was Paul Shear. We now give him his introduction. <laughs> okay. Okay. So now we can really get this podcast started. I, I feel like, I, I mean, and I understand why this is the case. But I've talked about it with uh, David a lot. Uh, 
when when this pandemic hit, right, this thing that was unprecedented that has rattled the film industry to its core, and it will take years to figure out what the actual long-term effect of this is. But certainly, it seems to be changing behaviors already in terms of how people think about movies and movie going as an experience. And I think is only like putting steroids into trends that were already going in a certain direction, which is what types negative. of- Negative. Yes. Negative yes. as far as I'm right. concerned. And I feel Probably. like- Theatrical movie going has been trending closer and closer to something like live sporting events where the things that people think are worth going to see in a theater are it's opening weekend. I need to be part of the conversation. There are things that could be spectacle. ruined for me and it's spectacle. I don't want to be spoiled on social media yeah. and it's got to be something that is that has components that are going to look better on a big screen than they do on my 65-inch television. Everybody, that's the thing is, yeah. everybody has an enormous television right. now. So, so, you know, a movie like, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of a, a comedy that's come out, uh, a movie that's a good comedy, people are like, I don't need to see that on a giant screen. It's going to look just as good on my 65-inch television. Well, even something like Game you can imagine people did that sort of, like, math, and that's a movie that's actually very visual. <laughs> it's a comedy that's actually cinematic, but it feels like it took a while for people to get that. One of the only comedies in the last five years to break $100 million. But, but domestically, it was under... And also, it like opened okay, but then it was a rare comedy to start doing better and holding in future weeks because it felt like there was yeah. actual word of mouth there, which so rarely happens and is how comedies yeah. really catch on. Not because all the best gags have been in the trailer, but because people start telling each other. And what happens is comedy also is this weird world in which, uh, you know, in which we all live and work and all that. But comedy is this weird thing that, when you get good enough at it, you decide now I'm going to go do that other thing, yep. you know? So, so, so like, it's like some of our best comedy direct or some of the people, some of the best comedy visual directors, or, or let's say, I'm just going to say, I'm going to take one and say Todd Phillips. Mm -hmm. Todd Phillips is an incredibly good director of comedy. You know, I think old school is amazing. I think hangover is amazing. Like he's an incredible comedy director. He, he imbues very simple, like what we're talking about, very simple game-based uh, comedy stories with stakes, with scope, with scale, everything. And does so with incredible uh, visual storytelling. He now does not make comedies. Right. He's, he's fully out. Yeah, and he seems Fully to have out. embraced serious movies as him like leveling up in some kind of a way. That, right? And that's the thing. That's like at a certain point you get good enough that you're like, well, now I want to be in. I've gotten right. good enough at this. I, now that I'm the king of comedy, I want to go do this other thing because because that's the that's the real club I'm trying to get into, which makes me so confused. There's nothing weirder than Todd Phillips's career, because like you said, he's a huge comedy director. He makes so much money doing it. He's basically a top of the game. He's like, I'm done with this. I'm going to go do a like gritty Scorsese reboot of 
and he wins like the golden lion at the Venice Film Festival. Like it's not just that the movie did well. Like you know, like he won oh, like it prestigious made over awards. A billion dollars. Yes. Yes. It's insane. It's, it's insane. It's crazy. But also, I mean, the director of Dumb and Dumber making his like weird, oh. uh, you know, uh, Driving Miss yes. Daisy, which also yes. played like gangbusters overseas. And to that guy, you're like, comedy's been trending downwards. My last couple of movies weren't hits. I make this sort of saccharine dramedy and I win Best Picture. Can you imagine winning Best Picture just years after you did The Three Stooges? Insane. Like, this is why. Here's another example of this. We don't think of Robert Zemeckis as a comedy director, but let's go through his career. I want to hold your hand. Use cars. Romancing the Stone. Back to the Future. Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Back to the Future 2, Back to the Future 3, Death Becomes Her. All comedies. There are other genres sprinkled in there, but all of those movies are comedies first and foremost. And then he makes Forrest Gump. It's his biggest hit. He wins the Oscars and he never looks back. That's the problem. Forrest Gump was him leveling up. Yes. Or what, you know, that's how it's perceived. Yeah. That's the thing that happens so often is... There's a tip where once they get it's and I I hate to say it, but I think it's like and maybe I'm wrong, but it's it is it is the false idolatry of the Oscar yep. uh, or or in your case, Griffin, the yeah, Saturn, um, the desire <laughs> this something about even Jim Carrey was on Howard Stern recently and they started talking about how he's never won an Oscar, how he's never and he even still with everything Jim Carrey has done with like what an icon he is. You can still feel the hunger and the hurt he has. It's so on the surface to have not been given that Oscar, you know, which is such an incredible who cares? You know, what's also wild is I I recently watched the, the trip to Greece, the fourth, the trip. Amazing. Great. Amazing. Uh, One of the best franchises ever. Uh, Not talked about Uh, as a franchise. Hands down, Coogan and Bryden are one of the best uh, comedy duos of the last 25 years. They are. But also, I love how that movie feels different, like how they find weird new angles on the exact same format. Are you guys aware that those are shot as British TV series? Yeah, of course. Well, Jason, how how would I know that? I've grown up in the United States. I only watch American television. Wait, David, you knew that? Listen. David, as a lifelong New Yorker, David, yeah. How would you? Um, Jeez. How would you know how it works? I'm explaining I'm honored, British. Honestly, I want to explain British television and how it works <laughs> to you guys as 100 percent Americans, who my understanding is have never even been abroad. I assume that you're the one who has the greatest understanding on this subject of any of us. You're sure. saying I mean, as the child of Greek immigrants, right. I am closest to yes. uh, uh, an international to Europe, uh, right, consumer right. uh, of European content. Uh, uh, David, I, I believe you to be uh, a lifelong Upper East Side boy. Yeah. Uh, upper West Side, but, but close Upper enough. West, yeah. Upper Uptown West boys uh, in the house. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> trip to Greece. Sorry, yes. Griffin, I interrupted uh, you. No, I, I, I went to uh, London, uh, a, a thing that I assume no one else on this podcast has done. You, you uh, took you took a trip, one might say. I took a trip, but I, I think it was when we were doing Tick Press and on like British Netflix, they had the seasons of the trip TV show, which is how it was released over there. And I just like stayed up all night binging all of those seasons because I was like, I, I when I fly back to America, 
I'm stuck with 90 minute versions of these. It's so when I discovered that for the first Blue one, somebody told me and I flipped out and it's so much right, better. Like they're it's five hour versions story. of each of these. That's crazy. Oh, it's more riffing. Yeah. It's it's the trip is something I've been chasing for years that again, it gets back to what I like about uh uh, used yeah. cars. It's what I like about Lebowski. Yeah. I like, it's what I like about uh, uh, Lodge 49. Uh, mm-hmm. I like a shaggy hangout kind of rambling hangout yeah. movie. That has emotion though. Like that's what's sort of magical yes. about the, the all the things you're talking about. It's like the trip, you're like, oh, this is just, you know, initially maybe you're like, eh, it's just them doing bits. It's funny, but like what, you know, what's hanging this together? And like those mo- those shows, movies, what they're so sad and they're so heartfelt and they're kind of like you know they're kind of genuinely mean to each other and genuinely loving and like i feel like greece is all about dying like the the latest one like it's all about sort of confronting your mortality but also those are the most joke dense comedies like you know if you look at things in the last 10 years you're like what comedies actually just have really good joke hit ratios and i'm like those four movies what we do in the shadows and pretty much yep. the Sandberg movies you named, right? Like those are the only ones that are operating yeah. that level. Apatow has gone more and more towards sort of tragic comedy. He's trying to do James L. Brooks. He's given yeah. up on, he's given up on comedy right. and he's trying to do James L. Brooks movies. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's it. That's the, that's now his template. Aside from the, the fact that the trip movies are sort of, despite not even being intended as films, what we wish we were seeing in American studio comedies. There's also the fact that in terms of the character arcs in those movies, I don't remember if it happens between two and three or between one and two, but like, Coogan's soft spot is you never made it as an American movie star, right? With these yes. guys poking fun at their own identities, that's where Bryden pokes him is you tried to cross the pond. You never fully translated as an A-list American comedy star. And then his defense at some point starts to become, but look at the awards I've won. The character yes. right. gets his sense of confidence from- He is Philomena. From, he is yeah, Philomena right. and he gets the serious nom for, for Laurel and Hardy- Right, right. It's exactly what you're talking about. In Greece, he's talking about ba- Baptist, like his BAFTA. I got a serious you know, BAFTA and, and as a leading is, actor in a dramatic film. Yes. yes. And the slight, where and Bryden's soft spot is he's a TV you're actor. You're a light entertainer. He's yeah. a TV actor still doing a man right. trapped in a box. <laughs> yes. But Bryden, Bryden really is, that's that's a thing in Britain that Britain, I feel like, values much more, right? The, the light entertainer, like you say, right? Like, you know, the guy who can like, do 10 minutes on a talk show, host an award show, do a serious sitcom, do like a wacky sketch show, like can do it all, basically. Do a little bit of everything. And But Coogan, Coogan mm. wants to be a superstar, yes. an American star. He wants to be a movie yes. star the way that American movie stars are. Coogan wants, Coogan's drive yeah. is to be the, is to be no, and it's in Tristram Shandy as well. Like it's it's right. in the, it's in there. It's baked into that as well. It is Coogan getting his shot. It's and it's it's so like he not only wants to be an American. He movie knows star, that's funny though. Yes, he knows oh, it's yeah. funny that he wants to be an American movie star, which is what oh, I love. He's about leaning him. into right. it. He's right. leaning right. into it. I mean, it's it. why uh, the movies are good and that the guys own everything that they're insecure about. But not only does he want to be an American movie star, 
as as a comedian, he wants to do that so that he can also then do the Jim Carrey move of translating to drama. And so he's had to become very defensive of the fact where like, well, the American career didn't work, but then I went back to England and I sort of got the dramatic respectability, which is his whole defense. And Bryden is so comfortable in the fact that he's a light entertainer. And Coogan has yes. had so much more success and is so much more insecure about it. It speaks to this whole dynamic you're talking about of like, how comedians perceive what they do and what the ultimate aspirations are. That's why they're so brilliant together. It's almost as if to say the thing that I have pursued, the thing that I have wanted and pursued the most mm. is only in service of some other thing yes. I'm not allowed, I'm not being allowed to do. It's almost as if comedy is a, a tool or will grant you an invitation to the cool kid table. You know, it's almost like the high school mentality of like, hey, I bet if I'm funny enough, the cool kids will invite me to sit at their table or will invite me to hang out with them. Not realizing like they're boring. I don't want to hang out at that table. It's a huge bummer. Yeah, that table sucks. Why can't being a comedian be enough? But then we will, I'm certain we could mm. sit here and just like lean in on Sandler yes. and be like, Oh, here we go. Here's another Sandler grown-ups movie. Here's another this. And then we reward him for Uncut Gems. We reward yeah. him for his more serious yes. turns when he turns it on and is like, hey, wait a minute. I can do a PTA movie. I can do uh, uh, Uncut Gems. I can do, I, I, I have this gear. But then when he continues to churn out Happy Madison movies, we are all kind of rolling our eyes and being like, is this still what we're Even doing? some of them are good. Like, I can't defend all of them. Sure. There was some interview he did during the Uncut Gems tour where it was like a longer form podcast interview. And someone asked him, like, look, every time you do one of these movies, you get really great reviews. You've proven you can do this. Even if all your dramatic turns haven't, like, worked, you know, financially, you always get good notices. Why are you still doing these Netflix comedies? And Sandler, whose persona is so like, yeah, yeah, laissez-faire, I'm a chill, yeah, yeah, buddy, whatever actually got kind of defensive. And he was yeah. like, because I love comedy. Like, why are you asking yeah, me this? Right. Comedy yeah. is my first love. It's why I got into this. Why would I stop doing it? I like doing the dramatic stuff. It's satisfying. Yes, it is nice to finally get some good reviews, but I don't view that as a way out. And you're like, we wish our comedy stars had a little bit more of that attitude, where instead, Agreed. I think, not to make this second half, this sheerless half of the episode, and I'm saying half because this episode is going to be 17 hours long, <laughs> about psychoanalysis. I do think there's something tied to the fact that so many comedians, their development of their comedic personality is rooted in some sort of insecurity, right? Yes. Basically, what it seems to me is, especially those guys, that generation before the Jim Carrey, the Mike Myers, the big solo, it's mm -hmm. me. The I am the movie. Yes. You're the franchise. Farrell is the closest you have to that now, yeah. right? Like probably. But Sandler. I think Farrell yeah. works. Here's the difference, though, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say this: Carrie, Mike Myers, these are guys mm. who are solo lone wolf performers, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and Farrell likes bouncing off someone. You're right. Farrell yeah, right, right. always He's has an ensemble. Yeah, he yeah. always yeah. has an ensemble because he knows I work better when other people are also being mm -hmm. funny. I don't need to just be Ron Burgundy. Yeah. 
Brick yeah. Tamblin might as well be just as much a hilarious character and um, whatever, whoever else. I can't remember the character names of everybody else. Paul Rudd can have his game. Everybody gets to have a game. Yeah. But yeah. in a Jim Carrey movie, he has the game. Nobody else has a game. You yeah. know, and those guys seem to always be trying to prove something to someone else. Not come and Will Ferrell operates from a and I I'm saying this because I've been in Will Ferrell sure. movie like I know him he is coming from a place of joy in that this I don't know this cracks me but, up but mixed results yeah. Sandler's the same fucking thing oh, Sandler's yes. all about totally. like fill the cast with other funny people let other funny people score I want the movie to be a hangout you can strike him yeah. for that being sort of lazy and him getting caught up in his same stuff over and over again but those movies do feel like he's doing them because he finds them fun yes and I think that translates into viewers like his movies on Netflix Humongous. have been massively successful because for 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 nothing else else than people want to hang out with him, hanging out with his friend. Okay, so now I'm going to tie together a bunch of threads we've been throwing out. So, oh, so watch. one, I watch feel this. like third beat. You have third, third beat connection. You have a lot of comedy being rooted in insecurity in terms of what drives people to pursue this as a career in the first place, right? Which means that for a certain type of people who isn't keeping their love of comedy and the craft of it at the forefront of their mind and are viewing rather comedy as some sort of solve to the emptiness in their lives. If I can say this, perhaps you get to the top of the mountain, whether as a director or as a star, you're making $20 million a movie. You're the guy above the title. Your films are all hits and you still feel empty inside. You yeah. go, I guess this isn't it. I need to go serious. Maybe the awards fill the gap. You start chasing that thing. Or Agreed. you do sort of a Mike Myers thing where you're like, I don't know. I guess I just kind of disappear. I'll show up when I feel yeah. like it, right? Myers is like, you know what? I'm out of ideas. See you later. Right. Like, I guess I just, well, I'll, I'll check back in. Yeah. I think Mike Myers was basically like, oh, the thing I do uh, people don't want yeah. anymore. Right. And I'm not going to just be the cat in the hat right. instead. And like, I, can't I can't do evolve, that. Yeah. I can't evolve otherwise. Right. Like I can't. Cause here's the thing. Mike Myers could have just become a working. Absolutely. Actor, you he know? could have been a plug and play comedy star. He, you know, like he's good in studio 54. He could have been a good actor, you know, like yeah. he didn't, but he was so used to being, these it was all about the externals of his characters mm -hmm. the broadness of uh love guru or these kind of larger these cartoon characters yeah. whether it was literal cartoon character you know with prosthetics and stuff or whether it was austin powers cartoon big bright color kind of cartoon characters but the world just was like we don't want that anymore and he was like i don't know how to I think he was like, I don't know how to be funny without that. And you got to give him credit for that level of self-awareness, you know, in the yeah. same way that Sandler and Farrell have the self-awareness of like understanding where their bread is buttered, what they do. They'll still try other things. They'll be in other people's oh. movies. They'll try dramatic roles. The idea that Will Farrell was like, you know, what would be funny if we made like a uh, Spanish language right. telenovela that I was the star of. And people are like, great, go try do it. it. Like I that. Tickles me. I like that. You know, I love I mean, I love Farrell. I'm the, the huge. But like with Myers, we do have that sort of sickness. And we had it with Farrell. I feel like when he was at his anchorman height, where like when he takes the stranger than fiction role, where like the press and I feel like even moviegoers are like, ooh, like, is this it? Is this the serious turn? Like, you know, it has become so much a part of the arc. And like anytime Mike Myers pops up in something like Inglorious Bastards, I feel like there is that kind of thing of like, oh, I want to see Mike Myers be serious. Like, and then he, you know, that he just doesn't want to do that. Like, that's not his thing. It's such a funny trajectory that I feel like um, 
both Tom Hanks and um, Robin Williams kind of pioneered. Yeah. You know, the flip from TV, popular TV comedian to Oscar winning dramatic actor became a path pretty close to each other. Those two did that thing that a lot of comedians were like that. I'll do that. That's the template. And it's the same template for both. It's like sitcom to madcap movies to sincere comedies, like still a comedy, but more of like a sweet comedy to I'm taking the dramatic roles. Like they both went on the same path or like the comedic role like Patch yeah. Adams is a comedic role in a serious, serious movie. movie. Right. right. Yes. You know, yeah. um, uh, uh, you know, uh, and there's like serious stuff in big, you know, that's like versus like bachelor party or splash or whatever. Big has like emotional stakes yeah. that are, that help Hanks get to the next level. Yeah, big right. is his Good Morning Vietnam, where it's like, oh, you have a movie yes. perfectly set up to allow him to be funny while the outside trappings of it are vaguely serious. Yes. While Mercedes rule can give you like real grounding elements right, of like my rules. son has disappeared. Yes. Um, but but I think it's also telling that like Hanks, you know, it, it's it's Philadelphia and then it's Forrest Gump. That are the pivot yeah. points where it's like, well, now he's America's dad and his comedies that he makes that are successful after that point are like romantic comedies. Right. The rare yes. examples where it's like he's playing a human male, guy. Right. The yeah. guy isn't right. goofy. It's more based on charm or whatever. Hanks has this insane box office run that pretty much is like uh, kneecapped by uh, the back to back flops of the terminal and the Lady Killers, which are his two yeah. attempts at like, I'm going to do a big, goofy character again. And he's yes. he's he's funny in the terminal. He's like genuinely. Fun. I don't Lady like killers, that movie I that think much. But we Lady Killers, he's funny, too. Like, he's good when he goes for it. Like, yeah. I, and I appreciate that he did. But people don't want people it. People don't want it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. People don't yeah. want it because also at, by the time Lady Killers comes around, nobody remembers bosom buddies. No. Right. Nobody no remembers, remembers him like, as you know, a TV star. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. It's that's not part of people's uh, memory of who he is. You know, I, now, uh, I think I think the modern version of it has become the Chris Pratt, which is like you want yes. to yeah. go. Let's because, get you in a franchise. Yeah. Let's get you buffed up. And I've heard stories from like friends who worked on shoots with people who are like UCB people. Where suddenly on this shoot, they have like an entire team around them that's going like stand up straight or don't do this. Can we get a shot of yeah. him with his shirt off? Because they're viewing right. still their comedy work as a soft audition for can we make this guy more of a conventional leading man? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing is like like any indie <clears throat> movie can now take Jake Johnson yeah. and take him from safety not guaranteed and put him into Jurassic Park. Right. Yeah. You know, because of Trevor. Right. And if, right? if you get to play the tech guy in Jurassic Park and prove that you can fit into this genre, then it's pretty much in your hands to go. Do I want to cash in the trips and try to be the Chris Pratt next? Exactly. And 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 that tip, you know, but what we're talking about now, again, is that tip is only available into these certain right. franchises because there are no more 
used cars. Yes. There are no, no. more um, it's on TV, budget. Maybe. Yes. That's it. Yeah. It's yeah. on TV. Right. But the yeah. reality is like everything now is an audition for a Marvel m- movie, right. uh, no. uh, 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 some Disney subsidiary, a Star Wars, a Lucasfilm Star Wars movie, a Marvel movie, or I guess now Jurassic or something. One of these giant tentpoles. Well, and not to, and this yes. is coming from someone who's in John Wick three. So but, take it with a but grain of salt. This is what I was going to say. Like I look at you, and I feel like you are one of the handful of people of sort of like your generation, your comedy class. You and Paul both fit into this thing where it's like. You guys have done other stuff, but you really have had like great comedy careers. But the comedy career now is kind of just like you just do everything, yes. you know, because if right. you want to go from being like the guy who scores in supporting roles or on TV shows or whatever to being a leading man, you almost have to sell out your comedy bona fides or evolve it into something else. If you want to be doing pure comedy work, it's more like a potpourri of a lot of different stuff. Because I, I, yeah, I talk about this with my buddy all the time where you're just like, it's very weird that we live in a timeline where we haven't gotten like three Nick Kroll character comedies. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I used to think that I, w- I kept being like when they made the Sandler deal at Netflix, I was like, why aren't they making tiny versions mm. of that with all of us with, with a, right why is and or why isn't hulu or you know yeah. right the competitors yeah. why they're paying they, him an enormous yeah. amount of money why don't right. they do the same for our uh crew yeah. of people I mean, and just Jason, give us a smaller amount of money name your you know, price. Just, I mean? and and say this is a public us, forum yeah give a you know like we'll give you you know 10 million dollars to give us three movies over the next three years when well, people you know? talk about this thing where it's like comedies used to be they were so low budget funny yeah. was what sold if people said man this movie actually made me laugh that would get people in the theaters because there was a little more breathing room for something to become a word of mouth hit and also like home video was big. Cable sales were big. I think yeah. the actual residuals on those things for everyone involved were richer than when they end up on streaming platforms. And so those movies, those budgets got bigger. Yes. You know, so you're making then suddenly in the 90s and early 2000s, you're making 60 to 80 million dollar comedies. Which then becomes a problem of if yes. this guy costs 20 million dollars and his movies cost this much and the expectation is that they're going to gross this much. Why would we give Jim Carrey a script that's really good? If a script's really funny on paper, in theory, we could cast unknowns and sell it based on humor. What we're going to give Jim Carrey is a premise that sounds funny, but the script isn't great. And the hope right. is that Jim Carrey and a, a you know a, a steady hand behind the camera will make it funny, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But these guys stop getting the best material. And, and the best comedies used to come out of this guy's been on two seasons of SNL or on this sitcom or scored the best friend roles in these other movies. Let's put him in a five million dollar comedy. What's but there to that's lose? That's the thing is those what doesn't happen anymore is exactly what you just described. Yes. And what is, in fact, had to take place is those people that even that are within the um, comedy machine. Yeah. Let's say you just brought up SNL. If that's the case, Kyle Mooney, who I think is a genius, yeah. 
has to go sideways and make Brigsby Bear. Right. Like he right. has to go and make it on of, his own, basically. Yeah, right, right? right. Right. Like you basically have to make a Sundance movie, yes. even though you are you already yes, You have comedian. to make a yeah. Sundance movie yeah. or the equivalent yeah. thereof. There isn't, there aren't studio movies no. that are for people, that are there for up and come there are there, there isn't a building block a feeder system it is really just it's you know chris pratt only happens because james gunn is like i want chris pratt right you right. know uh helms galifianakis and uh brad cooper bradley cooper yeah that's only happened because like i'm putting todd my phillips life on the said line. Yeah. right yeah. yeah todd phillips was like i will forego my director's fee right. because i want to cast these guys because the studio was like we want jack black i can't remember jack black and the two other well-known Gyllenhaal, I think were the three. something like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, it was nuts. And yeah, Phillips was like, "I'll give you back my ten million dollars director's fee yeah. if you let me cast these guys." And made movie stars out of all of them. You know, and comedy tends to function best with that kind of hungriness and that kind of risk. I have two thoughts uh, on the stuff you're talking about. One. The other thing that has kind of changed in a, in a weird way as well is that there used to also be the avenue of like, we're going to construct a network sitcom around you. Kind of like yep. what, you know, Sandberg did with Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But that's weirdly rarer now. Like that was such yes. a thing when I was a kid of like, you like this comedian? You liked him on SNL or some other thing? Here we go. It's the X show. That's it. It's going to run for 100 episodes plus. He's going to make a fortune. Like, you know, and for some reason, I, just because network TV is becoming so diffuse, that's kind of going away too. The other thing is, what do you guys think the biggest comedy franchise right now is? Because I have an answer and it's weird. <sighs> in, in movies? Comedy franchise. Did you say yeah, in movies. Did you say best or biggest? Biggest, not best. No offense to it. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hotel Transylvania. That's a close. That's <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. I is it animated? Hotel. Nope. What, it's, is it you know, a, action, you know, action comedy, obviously. Fuck, uh, that's what, a, what every big franchise is it's, now. It's not a Marvel. It's got to be something nope. that The Rock is in. It's got to yes. be a rock. Yes, that's it's, right. Oh, Jumanji. Um, it's Jumanji. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm thinking of like, you've got the big franchise, right? You got your Marvel, your Star Wars, your Jurassic Park. Sure. And then it's like Sony's like, yeah, we have Jumanji. And that's the world we live in now where Jumanji is a tentpole franchise. Well, that's the thing is like. As as also a writer, you know, I will have scripts in development and yeah. a, a, at certain points they will reach a point where we start looking at casting. Yeah. And right, right. the casting lists for actors, the the top 10 people are not comedians. Yeah. They are not comedians. Okay, this is it's another thing like, I talk about. Yes. <laughs> these are, they're not. And I've had conversations. I, I, I've had conversations with, with studio executives. I had a movie that I wrote and they were like, we will give you a green light to make this movie today in this room. If you will agree to cast one of these three women at, in the lead mm -hmm. role. And they right. named three pop stars, <laughs> right. not actors. Yeah. They named three pop stars, all of whom what they then told me were they the three of them were the three pop stars who had the largest social media following. Right. And they're right. probably funny sure. and relatable on Twitter, which is why they think they'd right. be good in a comedy. And that was their whole thing. Their whole thing was literally, if you can get Katy Perry to star in this movie, yeah. we'll give you the money. And I was like, 
Nothing gives me. I, I like Katy Perry, sure. but nothing makes me believe she can carry this Absolutely movie. I, I, what are we talking about? And right also, now? if you're bringing her in, there's a whole apparatus that comes with her that kind of just takes oh, over yeah. your movie. Yeah, and I'm just trying to make a funny movie here. So it's like a. It's we're in such a weird time because of the Jumanjis, yeah. because of yeah. all these things. You know, the the top grossing comedy stars are people like. Uh, you know, Ryan The Reynolds, Rock or the Zac Rock. Efron or Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, Reynolds yes. or people who are not necessarily. And I think all of these people are funny. Let me be very clear. Yeah. Uh, I think all of these people are funny. I've been in movies with some of these people. I think they are funny, um, but they are not comedians. Comedy movies have know? become the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing where it's like the only comedies yeah. that can get financed now are it has to be the brand, the franchise. It has to be at a certain size. It also has to have the spectacle. And the selling point is here's this guy doing comedy. But to a degree now where you're like, there's no novelty in the same way that Arnold eventually did five comedies. He's just sort of become a guy with a parallel comedy career. And, yeah. and I think I would argue mm. there is one pure theatrical comedy movie star left, and it's Kevin Hart. And we'll see if it lasts. Right. But he's the last yeah. guy who does like comedy movies that get released theatrically and do well. And also half of his movies are now him with The Rock. His last big hit movie, he did The Upside, which is him trying to tiptoe into that prestige territory. I will say yeah. this, though. In his defense, they shot that movie five years yes. ago. They did shoot that a zillion years ago. You know ago, what I mean? Right? Like, that's not a around. recent yeah. attempt. That movie, they shot that movie so long Do you long know what his ago. next movie yes. is? It's no. also sort of a tragic comedy about him raising children as a single father. It's a it's a okay. Paul White's movie, right? And no disrespect, um, I hope it's good. Oh, yeah. um, I'll take. I that. tend to like Kevin Hart that. movies. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Ride Along. I will say, and I'm not just saying this because you're on here. But I mean, but, don't but worry. He's about already it. tiptoeing into that territory. He's got a big action franchise. He's got his fucking lifeboat with The Rock, and he's starting to do his dramedies. To that point, I when I wrote my iteration mm -hmm. of that movie it was not for kevin uh, it was supposed to be andy samberg and ice cube and oh, wow. it really and it it went into turnaround yeah. that movie died and came back to life multiple times right. um, wasn't it the rock it and ryan reynolds at some point oh no no you might be thinking of central intelligence maybe but when it came alive again yeah it universal bought it out of turnaround uh and made it a kevin hart movie right um, uh, which was awesome. And that I did not rewrite. I, that was not my right. You know, that mm -hmm. was, uh, uh, man, Freddie and Hay wrote the version for, uh, Kevin Hart, but that really was capitalizing on the momentum of both ice cube coming out of 21 jump street and Kevin Hart on the rise being like, let's put these guys together. Let's lean into this two hander that we don't have much of anymore. And it worked. It was great. It's about fatherhood, the movie that Kevin Hart is currently making. Guys, uh, the weirdest I'm thing back. about it. Paul Shearer's back. Oh, well, We're still back. doing Whoa! Whoa! our post reveal. What happened? I, have, Death of theatrical comedies. Oh, uh, well, good. Wow! Yeah, audition for fatherhood. So I have a couple of thoughts on it. Wow! Uh, what, this is huge. One thing I just want to say about it is it's a Kevin Hart movie. It was written for Channing Tatum, who's another one of those guys like we're talking about, like The yeah, Rock. Action right? star yeah. comedian. Who counts as a who's who's on the top ten list of can can open a comedy right. question mark? Except he he has kind of vanished. Like there's the weird thing with Channing Tatum where he kind of is just it seems like he's sort of soft retired or he's taking a the break Swayze or something. Problem. I don't know what 
Yeah, yeah, where it's like, where, what happened to Channing? Like, where'd he go? But he was also in that zone. Anyway, hi, Paul. Hi, I'm back. I'm excited to talk about We're comedy. We're wrapping up. That's fine. I just wanted to jump no, on. we have four hours I've... left. All We're right, just great. getting cooking. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's interesting. We've, like, gotten, can, we've gotten very fired. Can, really I, can I tell you my theory that gets me angry? Then this is, Please. I'll bring it to the group because I talk, I yell this all the time, which is I'm really upset because what happened and I'm not talking about the outliers, but what mm. happened to comedies is this thing where we've adapted this weird thing that happened in independent movies, which are these dramedies. And yeah. what is becoming the norm is it's not funny and it's not dramatic, but it's a dramedy. And then mm. we're fucking sucked in this thing of like a, a really mediocre movie. Like give me a really funny movie or give me or give me a good drama. But I feel like we're in this weird zone where it's like, I guess that was funny what I just watched. I, I don't know. Yeah, I think the problem that to, to to answer that, Paul, I think the problem, the reason that is true is because we're not casting comedians yeah. yes. as the stars of those movies. Yeah. So those movies have to percentage wise lean more towards their strengths, which is as actors, rather than lean towards jokes, which is not their strength. But here's another crazy level. So when you're talking about <laughs> Kyle Mooney being in the position that used to launch movie careers, right? You've done a couple mm -hmm. seasons of SNL. You're starting to pop. A studio goes, you got a script or we have a script that could fit you. Here's $2 million. Make the movie. If it doesn't hit, no skin off her backs, right? Instead- You're Billy Madison. Right. They're now launching these sort of indie films. The, the, the pathway to them having a movie career is to play at festivals, which Brigsby Bear is the best example of this. But I think the worst examples of this that I'm not even going to name are- I need to make an indie type comedy, yes. which either has to be mm, yes. that yeah. level of quirky I need to flex that or muscle. meta or, or dramedy. Well, that's what I'm saying right. about that dramedy. Right. It's like, I got to show all sides when the truth is what I want to see you do is be funny. And, you know what was and, an indie comedy? Meatballs. That was right. fucking Ivan Reitman going, Bill Murray's funny. We should make a movie where Bill Murray can be funny for 82 minutes. And it was independent. Give me a movie where Bill Murray yells at kids. Done. Can somebody write that? Right. Boom, right. we got and it. And no one's making those vehicles on a studio level, but the people also aren't making them on an indie level. And indie films are now rising to the size of what used to be the lower level studio comedies. And the indie movies, the indie movies that are interested in being funny are more interested in being heartfelt yes. or showing, giving you an arc. Being funny isn't enough. Well, can I also just maybe throw one thing into the mix that the stars of these movies, and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, mm. also aren't satisfied with doing two or three movies where they're just funny. It's like, no, no, I need to show you the range where we used to have like Robin Williams just become a giant comedy star and then take a drama swing. Bill we unpack this edge. a little bit. Right. Yeah. So it's okay. Sorry. All right. So that, yeah, I feel like there is an energy of that. Yes, absolutely. No, there is. We, we talked about that idea that like it's a step comedians believe bigger. that at a certain point, once you get successful enough at comedy, it for some reason is something you desire to leave behind yes. now and yeah, become right. a dramatic actor. Like it's like if I get good enough at this, the other the, I can sit at the cool kids table and do drama. But I'm even you know? I'm even saying that where that used to be a step, step, step. Now this is like, let's start with that step. Let me show you oh, I see. a yes. comedy movie that has a, a really solid dramatic core. Like I'm going to show you in movie one, I got yes. the goods yep. to right. go off and be in a Sorkin, uh, you know, uh, miniseries. Absolutely. A Sorkin yeah. joint. Yeah. <laughs> like here's a career I think about all the time. 
Bill Hader, right? Mm-hmm. Is, Griffin Newman. Well, I think about that all the time in the wrong way. I'm just like, why can't I make this work? How, what's the angle here? <laughs> but, but, but Bill Hader is a guy who in any other era had made every single correct move to be an A-list comedy leading man. And I think it was very yes. much a choice on his part. Barry is, for my money, one of the best TV shows of any stripe it in the is. last 10 years. It's so good. Right. But it is also telling in terms of how much the industry changed that Hader was like, just amazing utility player on SNL, right? Just serves yeah. everything. Small roles in comedies, working up to bigger roles in comedies, being key supporting, eventually being second lead in Bombshell, uh, not Bombshell, Trainwreck. And uh, I wish he was the second lead in Bombshell. I wish he, he actually played Roger was. He played a lot of the character, a lot of, a lot of makeup in that movie, a yeah, lot he, of makeup. He did the first makeup test for uh, Megan Kelly. You know, for Megan yeah. Kelly. Oh, wow, sure. Right. Yeah, they thought yeah, he was yeah. a little too It was too an subtle. interesting, yeah, curveball. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then he gets to the point where in any other time period, it would have been like, Hater, what's your movie? Who do you want to write yeah. it with? Who do you want to hire as a director? Who are your buddies in the cast? What's your ideal vehicle? And for years, I remember hearing like, he's working on a script with Apatow. He's working on a couple scripts. He sold pitches for what his vehicle would be. And instead, it's like, here's the master of none path. When you get the moment to be the guy you want to make the sort of personal thing that is the juxtaposition of tones and shows that range and grows you to that point where you bypass the just being the star of the pure comedy thing. Once again, Barry is the absolute best example of that. I do not criticize him at all for doing that, but I also think now that's the paradigm that people follow. And sometimes you get what sucks, which is the shittier version of that, where you're like, just be funny. Yeah. I think that what what this is kind of illustrative of is the fact that and I don't know about, you know, I, we can only conjecture about what haters headspace mm-hmm. is at at that point. But at this point in time, if I'm create if I'm wanting to create for myself, TV is the safest Absolutely. place for me because I have more that's, control. That's where you get the control. Yes. Uh, and you don't need to worry about an opening yeah. weekend. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. where me as the writer performer, right. I can exert more control over this than if I say to Sony or Paramount or whoever, I'm going to go into your big movie and cede control to whoever this director is. Even if... Donald Glover is another person who could have done that. You know, who could have become a movie star. I will tell you you this. I was in the office of a place. I won't name names because I'm sure they would be fine with me saying it, but I won't name names. I was in the office of the... uh, Was it Dunder Mifflin? Uh, and the CDC, yeah, the, you were in the office of Dunder and Netflix. I was there on the day that the studio delivered the poster mock-ups for the film, a comedy mm. film, and they were terrible. One of them was mm. used. They were awful. They didn't convey comedy whatsoever, and they were so bummed, you know, as an office because. They couldn't really fight back on that because on that, it's the level of um, trust us. Trust yeah. us. That, that's our job. And you work so hard. And then the simplest thing, the one image that represents your film, you have zero control over. Same with trailers. That, 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 that the marketing for your movie is in the hands of... Not you, you know, like yeah. somebody else gets to cut your movie up and say, this movie is this, yeah. you know, and give away the biggest jokes and the reveals. Like I didn't see a trailer for Palm Springs. I'm so glad I didn't. Yes. Um, because 
there could be a way back in the day that you could have cut that trailer in a really cool way that wouldn't have revealed anything. Just tease a little bit. Just a little Uh, bit. Trust Us was the tagline on the poster for used cars, so I want people to know we're still on subject. Uh, <laughs> I want to say something about used cars. We should wrap up, but like um, I don't know, I'm saying, we have two hours. A, left. Mo- a movie that I rewatched recently uh, that kind of has a used cars vibe. Um, it's hmm. a little, maybe slightly less madcap, which is a movie I liked when I saw it. But when I on rewatch, I was like, "Oh, this is a very smart movie." Is Logan Lucky? Speaking of Channing Tatum, oh yeah, um, oh, yeah. which is a movie. When I saw it, I was like, "That was great." I had a great time. I didn't think about it much, you know. And obviously, it was wasn't a big hit. I also rewatched it recently. It was something I jumped to in quarantine. Is like, I think this movie would make me feel good. And it's kind of used cars is more acidic because used cars is really like it has the stuff like. Um, Jimmy Carter's getting interrupted yeah. in the middle of a sincere speech where they really are like, fuck you guy. Like, you know, America's mm-hmm. a shithole. Um, whereas Logan Lucky is kind of like the whole trick of that movie is that the whole time Channing Tatum is smart and he's smart because yeah. he knows how the system fucks people like him. And he knows how to work around that. And like the first time I saw the movie, like everyone he involves in his scheme are the same types of people who like, you know, the system fucks. Can I bring up another movie that used cars reminded me of to get Please. back to used cars? Uh, good guys. The Russell Crowe. Um, nice guys. Nice guys. Nice guys. Nice guys. Which also has the same element of. I mean, it, I think oftentimes these kind of scumbaggy guys are often caught up in like a. Uh, more of a thriller heisty kind of mm-hmm. a thing. Well, Shane Black, this is like a, that's a Shane Black special, yes, you know, right. like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang might as well be the same thing. Like Downey Jr. and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is legitimately a bad guy, yeah, yes. you know, like the, he stumbles into the events of the movie trying to run away from the events of his life that have been, that are bad, you know? Yeah. So the, um, it, it, that is such a Shane Black like trope that is, Part that is from this era, that is from his, you know, that's from the action comedies that he does in the late eighties, early nineties. Like it's he is like he's a through lion up up until now. You know, Iron Man three um, underrated. Oh, a great the best movie. Marvel best movie. Marvel, best Marvel, Marvel movie. movie. The best Marvel movie. Um, Predators maybe uh, not yeah. as successful, uh, but a lot, um, a lot went wrong there. I think. Can I drop yeah. my very quick Predators anecdote? Yes. Please. I was out at dinner with somebody and uh, they ran into a guy walked by and they went, oh, my God, how are you doing? Nice to see you. Da, 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 da. And they went, this is my friend. He's an editor. Uh, it was you know what it was? He had edited, I think, the pilot of The Tick, but didn't do the series. Got it. And I sure. was like, oh, why didn't you do the series? Uh, I, w- I was with the, the Tick cast. And uh, and he was like, I got pulled into editing Shane Black's The Predator and that was two years of my life wow. where the studio oh, greenlit a movie going, yeah, we get it. We want a Shane Black movie. He delivered a Shane Black movie. And I had to spend 18 months making it less of a Shane Black movie. Uh, oh, I would love to see Shane Black's cut. Yeah. There's like a full cut that I think whether or not it's perfect is a Shane Black movie. And that's and that's yeah. interesting to me. I mean, I remember reading some synopsis like based on scripts uh, from more reputable sources. And it sounded at least... It's not a Predator movie. It was a Shane Black movie about Predator, which I, look, I'm down to that kind of idea. It's like James Cameron and Aliens. It's like, you could take a director and and redo something. Totally. Oh, I love, you know, I just watched Aliens again. I'm watching everything from that era. 
uh, during quarantine. My quarantine media diet is wild. I, I want to just offer a movie up to the group here as a rewatch in this used cars vein because mm. I was thinking about it the other day and I loved it as a kid. And that movie has tones of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It's called The Hard Way. I was just going to say, I bet it's oh, The Hard wow. Way. Holy wow. shit, that's See, so we weird. Wow. We I try... I'm, I'm, I'm that, uh, go ahead. Well, no, I, I haven't watched it in a long time. Michael J. Fox is an actor who wants to like learn how to be a cop. And he is paired with, uh, why am I forgetting his name? Uh, James, Woods. James, James Woods. Woods. I looked into the rights for this movie to remake it a couple okay. of years ago. Can I just say very um, quickly, I was playing the mental exercise of if I became a comedy star and I was in a position to be able to make my own vehicles, what premise would suit me well? And I independently came up with the premise of The Hard Way and then found out that it existed. Because yeah. uh, I was like, that's yes. such a good comedy oh, movie funny. premise. Comedy movie, yeah. Soft actor has to actually learn. Yes. Right. The premise of The Hard Way is James Woods is a homicide detective in Detroit, I believe. Famed Twitter comedian, James Woods. No, it's New York because the, the final scene is it the New final York? scene takes place on that giant okay. billboard above Times Square, like the, the smoking uh, you're billboard. Right, you're yeah. right, you're right. Sorry, yes. And so, um, and he gets assigned like this, they're like, there's some actor's going to play a cop in a movie, so he's going to be in your car with you. And that's the day that, like, all of the crime lords decide to go to war with James Woods. And Michael <laughs> J. Fox, who's just an actor, is along for By the way, ride. It's right it's along. Ride along. It's right along the movie. Right along. I already right. Of course. Good I forgot about movie. that. I wanna, I'm going to watch it now. Let's all watch it and get together and talk for four hours about it. Please, please. <laughs> Here's what I'm going to say. The hard way, the reason I was looking into remaking the hard way is because the hard way is to me the perfect version of movies that should be remade yes. Yes. because it's flawed. Yes. It's not a great, when you rewatch it, you're going to be like, oh, this isn't great. But the bones of it are, it could, I can, the things that are wrong are very easily fixable. Uh, so it's a rewatch that is like, ooh, so tempting because it's yes. not, it's the, you don't watch it like, Fuck! This is an uh, this is a gem. Remake and it kind of remake is. the broken remake Logan's Run. Remake the broken scripts that like you know or the movies that can be done better. Like a good premise yeah. that is executed. Don't okay. remake a classic. Never. Right. The, the closest I have ever yes. come to selling something is I almost almost talked some junior executives at Universal off of a general meeting into letting me try to develop a Last Starfighter remake like oh, years wow. ago. And it was a thing where a, they were like, we'll quietly let you do this without any money to see if it turns out good enough that we could pitch it up the ranks. But also the rights on that thing are fucked. But that's one of those things where you're just like, that premise is perfect. It's even more relevant today. You could apply like any new comedy star, build it around their personality, totally transform it, do it with better effects. Like that's the kind of thing you want to fucking remake is the thing that didn't totally hit the first time. No, or something that has no, uh, it's IP without an emotional connection. You yep. say the thing, yes. I've heard of Last Starfighter. I don't remember it. So I have no connection. Like, wait, you're not going to have the guy who takes out his eyeballs and washes them with the <laughs> right. handkerchief? You know, like right. no one cares. And and that's what you kind of have to walk this line of familiarity, but not uh, devotion to or connection to. It, it, it's weird. It's a weird, there's a subtle line there. I also wanted to say other, one other thing about, as we're talking about actors and stuff, I had this realization the other day, whether or not it's a good, and maybe I change it in a couple of days, but I was like, I almost just want to strive to be like Eugene Levy. I'm like, here's a guy co-wrote 
some of the greatest, you know, big comedies, improvised comedies, just subtly just working away, did sketch shows, now created, you know, Shit's Creek, like just continually getting to do his thing for a long, uh, but a long time. that's what you yeah. guys are doing. Like, yeah. I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but we're talking about these sort of comedy careers that don't exist anymore and the types of comedies that don't exist anymore. And it's like, you guys represent the modern paradigm, which is you do a little bit of everything. Like, both of you guys have great careers. You're, like, beloved, and you're in a lot of popular great projects. But there's no longer the, like, you become the guy, here's the brand, right. here's the thing, and you're just doing pure comedy. It's, I'll do guest spots on this, I'll do an arc on this, I'm a regular on this, I do this movie, I rewrite this script, I sell my own projects, I do sketches. But not for nothing, yeah. I want to be, like, very clear, not for nothing, a huge component of, yes, exactly what you're describing, Griffin, is true. Like, the comedy career currently is, you do myriad things, including what we're doing right yeah. now. You cannot underestimate how big a driving engine podcasting yep. has For been. For building an audience? Yeah. For the rise of comedians. Right. You know, like you see somebody, you know, you see people come up through UCB, you see people come up through whatever, but like the like 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 the people that come up through UCB that then like Lauren Lapkus being the in wrong Missy. The, I was gonna bring up is almost yeah. the one is so it's much what we're talking about, about should happen. Yes, is so much about Comedy Bang Absolutely. Bang. Absolutely. You know, Comedy Bang Bang is the is the SNL for yeah. her. Is the is the thing that takes her from a UCB kind of she's doing her own character stuff. She has the Netflix things, but like but like you Comedy Bang Bang I think introduces her to an enormous mm -hmm. amount of people that ultimately garners the attention of the Happy Madison people who are like, "How about her?" Let's do the movie where she just gets to go full lapkiss. Right. Where she gets to be the full-on character and Spade is the or straight. Or get her you know? in the room with maybe just a little bit underneath her, like, and then she can score and just kill it, like, and crush yeah. it. Like, you know, to me, the, the one career that I'm always kind of amazed that, and I believe it will continue to go, but Nicole Byer, I think, is like this full yeah. package of just- Why isn't she a movie star? Yeah. Why isn't she a She's movie star? She's the best. Like, Put her in every movie. And she'll yeah. never be on this podcast. Because there aren't comedy movies. Yeah, right. This this is the, the only the reason. This is the problem. The only yes. reason a lot of these people are not comedy movie stars is because there are not comedy movies. And when there are, comedians aren't so in them. To right. bring everything yeah. full circle, you're like, what needs to happen is, as you said, Jason, Netflix having the courage to be like, let's have a $20 million slate of like four to five comedy movies made oh, at that cumulative is, yes, budget yes. where it's like, What's yeah. the Nicole Byer vehicle? What's the this? What's the that? In the way that yeah. like The Wrong Missy is the first time it feels like they're using one of their pre-established Netflix comedy stars to launch someone else's leading star career. They need to start doing more of that, like proper two-handers. Well, Tim Robinson too. It's like he did his show. They, yes. gave him his, they gave him his characters. Then he got his show. It's like, I'm all for that. But I, I love what Jason, like, I've been... I've been saying, where is the Blumhouse of comedy forever? Make this is what one I million dollar yes. movies. Right. Go this and then the one thing. can hit. One can and hit 24 big. should do it. Netflix yes. should do it. All these places should do it. It makes, it, it should not be the rarity. It should be like, it's like, it's the same thing I feel like 
this should every shop, every yes. streaming service, every studio should have a low budget comedy division that is just making deals yes. with people like us. I mean, listen, we're here. We are patting ourselves on the back, but, but no, but it's to like, be but making we and forwarding. Yes. It should be like yeah. the Blumhouse thing is a collective where your ownership, you get ownership of, you get this whole thing, yeah. but you'd have to do it for like two years to really see the affect because all you need is one movie to make 120 million, and the other 10 movies that you made for one million, you've just ate up all the costs. They're paid for. Exactly. And, yes. and by the yeah. way, they might be great. They may actually be really great movies, but if you have one that just hits, that's all you need one a year to do minimal hit. Guys, let's let's start a cult, I, I, guys. That's what I, we're I, doing. Let's here, start right? a cult. Let's start a cult. Uh and, and let's get Jack Warden's daughter on board. Of but course. I do I do <laughs> think to like bring everything in together, all these threads, right? It is that fact. You keep that, saying that. <laughs> no, but watch this. Watch this, okay? <laughs> wow. Third beats of the second Herald. It is the fact. <laughs> Connections, baby. Comedies do come out of movements, right? Whenever there's a big shift in comedy, you're like, there's the spider web connecting all of these people. They came out of the same theater, the same group, and these people are connected there. They appear in each other's movies, right? And then there's now been a generation that never translated to film in the sort of meaningful way. It's been in this sort of like side pocket way. It's been spread out because comedy films as a genre started to go down as they became too inflated, as the expectations became too high, as they went sideways, and as the vision went to like overseas billion dollar grosses, which comedies are very, very hard pressed to achieve. But, but there is this thing where comedies are also about careers. They're about low stakes, big picture in the way that Zemeckis and Gale could make several flops in a row that people knew were good. They were like, these guys are gonna make a hit. We have to just keep on betting on them. Kurt Russell isn't a movie star yet for adults, but he's gonna translate. Like all these things that then pay off with something like Back to the Future, where you have two sitcom stars who haven't starred in movies, directed by a guy who's mostly made comedy flops and everything's perfect and it fucking explodes like a supernova. And you need to have that sort of big picture, low stakes, long game kind of view of trust things. the process. That's now, what you need to do. This is my hope. I want to just outline a vision here. It's scary right now that as everything has been like upended by the coronavirus, that every studio immediately went without any second thought, we can just put, the comedies on VOD, right? Like tent poles, they're yes. still considering. Mid-level kids' films went to VOD, and comedies, they were like, get rid of all of them immediately. Dump it, dump it, We dump don't need it. to think about this, which, yes, comedies play well at home, but also a good comedy plays so much better in theaters, and I think people forget how thrilling an experience it is. There's a whole generation of people who haven't been raised but on it. by the way, My you Spy... Know? It was a flawed film that was tr that they were trying to sneak out. So they Absolutely. used the coronavirus as a cover. And, and a, lot of, can, yeah. a lot of them have been like that. But then there's something like Palm Springs where you're another, like that. Com another comedy starring, starring an a non-comedian, you know, and and or like By the um, way, his Stuber. Second or third. Yeah. Stuber before yeah, yeah, that. Exactly. You know, uh, again, and Kamel, obviously a, a comedy star, but Bautista not, right. you know. And Kamel had um, to go the indie route. And even then he's yep. paired up with an action star who they're spending more energy trying to make a comedy star than actual comedians. And now Kamel is in a Marvel right, movie. Exactly. Uh, to the, and he's to the conversation we. Right. To the conversation we were having earlier. Way, you know what I mean? Like, one more step together. Stuber is kind of like the hard way. Absolutely. Yeah, so it is. To, have, yeah. to have everything fold in on itself, this is sort of my hope. <laughs> Studios seem to be like, 
<laughs> Fuck it. It's only three. We're fixing it. Three, this is the last yes. episode of, because we're fixing it we're today. Fixing we're Hollywood. fixing the whole we system. We fixed comedy. It's $300 million, billion dollar movies that have to be seen in theaters because people want the exuberation of seeing Cap catch Thor's hammer opening weekend before it's spoiled. And that's all that matters. But what people don't realize is a hot comedy playing with a good crowd is as exhilarating a communal experience as Cap catching Thor's hammer. It's the same kind of juice that now people keep on memeing. Remember how exciting this was. Here's my cam rip of people cheering in the theater at Endgame. What I wonder is, as studios start to go more and more, eh, if a movie isn't a four-quadrant slam dunk, we'll just punt it onto VOD. These theater chains are going to have less and less things to play because there are only so many tentpoles you can make a year. Yep, they need, they need other movies. It's why they need A24 and STX and all that. Much like what happened in like the 70s and even before that, it's like you have your prestige movies, your serious movies, but you have a lot of little scrappy com- uh, companies that are filling in those genre niches. I was going to say it's all the things that right now it's genre. Yes. It's horror movies. Those are the things that people go to the right. theater for. They don't go to they go to what's interesting about where we the, the time we live in is people still will go to the movies to be scared together, but they will not go to laugh together. And that is weird. But if a movie has that heat around it where people are saying you won't believe how funny this is, that's my question. Like, will it work again? Is it even possible to get people back? But I wonder if a place like A24 could sense the opening in the industry as uh, like suddenly there are fewer films to play on screens because the studios aren't putting everything onto theaters uh, or the theatrical window is collapsing to go like make low risk comedies, follow a Blumhouse model. Theaters need things to fill screens, make things that are just low risk and hope that if one of them hits, as we said, it more than makes good for the entire budget of the slate of movies you made. And you are building, hopefully, yes. theoretically, that next generation of people that are going to become the the movie stars of because that's yeah. the other thing. I mean, I'm I'm not going to start this conversation now because I suspect it would lead to another hour of chat. But we don't have movie stars well, anymore. No. It's right. something that doesn't exist as a reality. Anybody who's a, still a movie star is over fifty. There is no there is nobody who's 30 something and is a movie star in order for Ryan Reynolds to become a movie star. He had to put a mask over his face. You have to play a character bigger than yourself. And no and no slight against Ryan Reynolds. But Ryan Reynolds is also in many respects, I would think if you asked many people, a comedy star. He is in an action movie, but he is the face of comedy like that. He is our biggest comedy star. And I, I think you could make that argument very strongly. And I, I feel like, uh, and, and Chris Pratt has been the other person who has been able to fill a void, has a Kurt Russell thing, tying it back to the podcast. Absolutely. And, and, and been able to and run. Kurt Russell played his dad in guardians yeah. too. And I think yep. forever though, they were trying to find that Chris Pratt and they did it with, you know, the star of Tron, the remake of Tron, the, right. all these like faceless white guys that were not bad actors, but they didn't have that charisma, that extra little bit of energy. What's gone now. And now this gets into another <laughs> thing is what's gone now. I just watched the old guard, um, um oh, yeah. which a I enjoyed. Movie we based love. On the we Greg, just did an episode on based, really based on the, the Greg Rucka comic, uh, which I really loved. Um, 
Um, and, but here's my criticism of both The Old Guard and another Netflix action movie, which I enjoyed but not Extraction. enough, which was Triple Frontier. Oh. Mm. Extraction, I, like I, I, Extraction I enjoyed for... Extra- extraction right. I enjoyed as just a straight up pulpy, yeah. you know, um, action, action yeah. movie. Yeah. Like, it's Terrific. like a, a shitty Stallone movie. Yeah, whatever. It's like Warriors. Or just, it's just getting across town. I mean, that's, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, which another good movie that falls into that category is 21 Bridges with Chadwick mm-hmm. Boseman, which I also enjoyed. But The Old Guard and Triple Frontier um, are ensemble movies where every single person is brooding. Yeah. Like the ensemble yep. doesn't have a joker. It doesn't have a wise ass. The ensemble doesn't have right. a comedian. The ensemble doesn't have a weirdo. The ensemble doesn't have any variety. Everybody speaks with the same. Triple Frontier is like every guy is handsomer than the next. <laughs> Even like the weird, the weirdo guys are still hunky like good looking brooding guys. You can't we can't have movies in which everybody's Charlie no. Hunnam. Charlie Hunnam's not even Charlie Hunnam. You know what I mean? Like we we yeah, gotta no. like there is no differentiation yes. amongst everybody has the same voice. Everybody has the same um, cadence. It's very well, this, bizarre. This is why I'm really looking forward to this movie Tomorrow War, which is the Chris Pratt yes. uh, film. He had yeah. a uh, a comedian on set. I won't name names. Uh, a comedian on set to do punch up while they were shooting, which mm-hmm. uh, and sh- uh, she's a great writer. Uh, but also, there are people in here that Sam are funny. Richardson, like Sam Mike Richardson, Mitchell. Mary, Mike, Mike Mitchell, Mitchell. Mitchell. Uh, Marilyn Rice Cub. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. Director of Lego Batman movie. Like, it feels like that's a movie yeah, that's Chris trying McCain. to be a big tentpole, like, action sci-fi movie that is also really funny, where funny people are getting to score. So, I mean... And that's what you hope happens. That, but that's you know, you hope you, that ensembles can have that. Sorry, Paul, go ahead. When you get somebody like Chris Pratt, who I believe is a funny person who mm-hmm. also is looking for that in that film. And I look at Triple Frontier, which I didn't even realize came out. I remember when they were shooting that. And now I look at that, I'm like, oh yeah, well, I don't think any of these people fancy themselves a comedy person. I think the only person, you know, it's like, I guess Anna Diarmas thinks that Ben Affleck is hilarious. But besides that, like uh, based on their paparazzi <laughs> photos, but, uh, but, but that, besides but the, that, I the mean, thing it's to like, me is like, it's not, it doesn't have to be a, it's not a comedy by any means, but, an ensemble to me should have some Variety. people that have that can sell jokes. Yeah. That's what's great about the. That's what's great about the original yes. Predator. Yes. That's what's great about. That's, that's what's great thing. about all Die of the. Hard. That's what's great about. That's what's great about Die Hard. That's what's great about these Verhoeven yes. movies. But Die Hard is Bruce. I mean, at the center. I guess what I'm saying is at the centerpiece, it's somebody who, like, I think that Schwarzenegger thinks of himself as being funny. I think that he makes a lot of jokes. And, you know, I think is open to that. I think there's a, another generation where ensemble is like, no, we're all the badasses. We're all the tough guys. And, and yeah. I think Shane's Black movie, Shane Black's Predator tried to do it with Keegan-Michael Key and the cat. Like yeah. there, there are these elements, but you have to have somebody who gives a shit about that. Like just not looking cool. You have to be like, oh yeah, but we should have yes. a light moment here. And I think that Stallone and Schwarzenegger for as much shit as they're given, all of their movies for the most part have comedic relief in them yes. like yeah. yeah oh and all the great like i think the great directors of this era you know recognize that levity is required mm-hmm. you know i think um paul verhoven i think james cameron scorsese is a great example scorsese yes. movies are funny sure like like bill bill paxton in aliens is yeah. funny 
It's a com- it's a big enormous performance juxtaposed against you know Ripley that is not a funny character at all, deadly serious. By the way, I I really want a James Cameron and comedy discussion as well because I think he his <laughs> what he thinks is funny is funny to me as well. So, uh <laughs> Oh, absolutely. David has officially re- reached the threshold of biting his nails and rubbing his temples. I think this is also now going to be our longest episode ever. This Sorry, is our but... longest episode. We've also my headphones are reaching they're about to die, okay. that, which I know that's <laughs> when I know things have gotten uh things have gone close to the 3-hour mark, which is great. I love yeah. it to be clear. I mean, this is essentially two episodes in one. We gave yeah. people a yes. two first. Yes. Right. We were fully done with, you said that we had another half and I was like, oh, that's a funny joke, Griff. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much when what I we was ended up. watching it. I was on my conference call watching it go on. I was so excited to jump back in. <laughs> I, I couldn't wait. I was so upset to get off. And, uh, uh, I kept on pushing app. my call, kept on pushing it, pushing it. And I was like, I got to get on it now. I got on it. And then you guys are still here. Usually when we have, you know, people who have busy lives on our podcast, we're like, well, let's try and get them out. You know, yeah. like, let's not try and take up too much of their time there we go this is all all i have to do today and nothing i want to do more than talk to the smart funny people about smart funny stuff well Uh, i I think you and i are in similar boats as a single man who live alone and are paranoid about this virus and never leave losing losing my mind uh, right now away from my home at a rented house in, in a safe area and my children are down by the pool and i am in here uh, railing against the system. Uh, you're in here and you're like, okay, but guys, James Cameron, let's let's get into his comedy. Let's talk about you're his just use like of comedy. Names. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, let's. I, I think we've started a lot of larger discussions that will need to be continued mm. at some larger point in time, and we need to figure out. Yeah, you're gonna have to, You're gonna have to come do. back. And, I'm sorry to tell you, you're to, gonna have yeah, to come back. Yeah. Happily, happily. So. happily. Yeah. 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 Um, hey guys. Do you have anything you want to plug talking about how great comedy is right now? <laughs> I'll plug something really quickly. Uh, last week, uh, Rob Hubel and I hosted uh, a show on Tiltify and YouTube where we were raising some money for Color of Change. You can actually still donate to this uh, thing. We are up to almost $9,000 right now. Jason's on it. Uh, June Diane Raphael uh, from How Did This Get Made is on it. Uh, Nick Kroll, uh, Carl Tart, uh, Tom Lennon. And, uh, and I feel like I'm blanking on somebody else. Uh, they're all on it. It's super fun. And uh, you can check it out. You can go to my YouTube page uh, and you'll have the Tiltify link right there. But I think that's a fun, a fun thing to check out. You know, we talked about um, small indie comedy kind of stuff earlier. Uh, I made a movie a couple of years ago called The Long Dumb Road. Yeah. Uh, that's now out on Netflix, uh, written and directed by Hannah Fidel, who's fantastic. Who's made great movies in the past called a, a teacher, uh, a teacher yeah. and so yeah, mm-hmm. great, years, great yeah. filmmaker, co-written with Carson Mel, who's a Silicon so Valley funny. writer, who's an incredible writer. Too. Um, uh, and so uh, that's on Netflix, and also I'm in the uh, I'm one of the voices in the new JG Quintel animated show on HBO Max called Close Enough. That's mm-hmm. really fun, family, absurd from the guys that did a uh, regular show, but a very adult it's cartoon. It's really funny. And oh, and by the way, I'll also plug that uh, How Did This Get Made Season 2 is starting August 20th, uh, and uh, that will be... Uh, Wait, How Did This Get Made Season 2? Uh, unspooled Season 2. Oh, wait, did I say How Did This Get Made? <laughs> yes, wow. Unspooled Season 2. Very excited. How Did This Get wow. Made? A second season would be... There uh, it is. I was going to say, that's, that's it. A, the longest was, uh, first Paul season Shear. of all time. I, Paul Shear is that trying to make... 
Trying to make how did this get made into I was, I was I knew it. Planting a bit, and I thought too much of the bit, and then wow. I said, "How did this get made?" <laughs> wow. Yeah, unspooled season. Two. I was like, and, and shit, that shows me because in my mind, I was like, "Have we been doing seasons?" That's hilarious. Sorry, I, for a minute, the first season I was, like, was a decade long. Yep, the first season was season 10 two years. is going to be two decades. Wow. It's just like British uh, yeah. series, though. So, David, you wouldn't understand this. Uh, it's We're only doing two seasons and then David we're done. David has fully course, surrendered. He's given up. His <laughs> headphones have died. One of them's dead. This one's hanging on. Is oh, it? Boy. No, One of them is no, going to go. Those, uh, those earphones <laughs> often <laughs> die on me during podcast recurrence. Uh, yep. Okay. Yep. Right, yep. Wrap it up, guys. Sorry. Uh, thank you guys so much for being here and check out all those things. Thank you genuinely. It was a, it was wonderful uh, to have you guys. And we'll email you guys soon to figure out another episode to do. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, Cause Sounds now great. we need Thanks, to start guys. solving other genres in Hollywood. We fixed comedy. Mm. <laughs> let's, let's save the adult drama next. Uh, oh, I would and, love that. Uh, happily. That's the other thing I've been watching a lot Hells, of. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for listening and please remember to rate, review, subscribe. Thanks to Andrew Gudo for co-producing this show. Lane Montgomery for our theme song. Joe Bone and Pat Rounds for our artwork. Uh, go to blankies.reddit.com for some real nerdy shit. Uh, tune in next week for Romancing the Stone. General Romancing uh, the Stone. One of my favorites. Uh, and as always... This is a podcast called Blank Check. It's about filmographies. Directors who have massive success early on in their careers and they're given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion products they want. Sometimes those checks clear and sometimes they bounce baby. This is a mini series on the films of Robert Zemeckis. It's called Podcast Away and our guests today are Jason Manzoukas and Paul Shear. 